Let's say China. You take China. 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 I love them. China. China. And I have to have my China. China. <laughs> China because China. 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 I know China very well. China. Northwest Wisconsin, where I'm from. It's China to me. China. 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 You want to buy from China? That's great. Buy from China. Buy toys from China. China in particular. China. China. I have people that I know in China. 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 China! <laughs> Let me ask you about China. China. I go to China. So don't tell me about China. I know China. Yes, dear listener. I'll give you one guess what we're going to talk about <laughs> <laughs> on this episode. This is the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove podcast, episode 255. And um, I said to my wife earlier, um, she said, oh, what, are you doing? what are you talking about on the podcast tonight? I said, China. And she said, what, again? <laughs> No, we're really talking about China this time. So uh, I'm Trevor. I'm the Iron Fist. Uh, with me, as always, is uh, Paul, the 12th man. Greetings, Earthlings. And for the month of May, with us, as always, was the beer sponsor. Ni hao, listeners. <laughs> so I said last week, look, let's talk about China because it's in the news so much and we obviously have been talking about China, but let's try and understand China and um, and get to know it so that we can see what has shaped China and how do they think? Because they may, and they do think differently to us, so we have to interpret things differently. So so this is an episode where we're just going to look at China, Chinese history, Chinese culture, Chinese economy, the military, the Belt and Road, and predictions for the future for China. So basically just trying to understand a bit about China. So because um, it's in the news and it's going to be in the news even more as time goes on. So, Particularly after this podcast, right? Particularly because we're thought leaders. <laughs> we are. We're trendsetters. <laughs> we are. In the chat room, Wheat Watcher and Will, good on you guys. If you're in the chat room, say hello. That's nice to know. All right. Um, well, why do a podcast on China? Um, I was reading a little bit from a John Menadue blog where the writer was saying that there's a trenchant and sustained bias against China, he said, or she said, can't remember who wrote it. And looking at why that's the case, and um, it was identified three things, uh, fear, ignorance, and projection. And basically in this article says that uh, while ignorance is not a direct cause of fear, it certainly feeds it. Mm. Um, and also when people are ignorant, there's a tendency towards projection. So if we don't know about others' motives, in the absence of alternative information, we tend to assume that they must be similar to ours. In relation to anti-China, there are now commentators questioning why we automatically assume certain things. So we may say, uh, why does China's positioning of its naval forces directly off its own coast imply aggression or military posturing and not simply securing safety of shipping lanes or defence. So they may genuinely see it as something different because of their history, which we'll get into. They may genuinely look at it in a completely different way and with some justification compared to how we might look at it not knowing the history of what's gone on in that country. It certainly shapes how you view their actions in many cases. So... um, so, yeah, so we would have our own perceptions of actions and what they mean, and the Chinese are culturally very different to us. They've got a history that's shaped them to think different ways to us. So 
maybe when they do things, they're not actually thinking the same way we think they are. We're projecting our thoughts onto their actions. So that's all the sort of stuff that we'll... And we tend to stereotype when we don't know much about people, don't we? Mm. And, of course, you know, there's just as much Mm. diversity and variety within the Chinese population as there is in any large population. Of course, there's going to be a lot of generalisations happening here. There will be. And, of course... So excuse us, listeners, if we sound like we're generalising too much. Yes. Mm. Hello in the chat room to Kobe and to Daniel, and um, thanks for that. Right, we're going to get into history very soon, but I thought we'd just mention geography, first of all, because the geography's there before even the history. And China has the longest combined land border in the world. It's got 14 nations that it shares a land border with. Vietnam, Laos, Myanmar, India, Bhutan, Nepal, Afghanistan, Pakistan, Tajikistan, Kyrgyzstan, Kazakhstan, Russia, Mongolia and North Korea. Mm. That's a lot. And in addition, it's got maritime borders with South Korea, Japan, Vietnam and the Philippines. Like It is just surrounded by other countries and it's got a lot of uh, international sort of foreign affairs to deal with. Um, Did you mention Taiwan in that list? Um, or is that China? Uh, well, Excuse me. <laughs> Taiwan is a part of China. <laughs> you're, you're right. And a maritime border with Taiwan. You're dead right. Mm. This, this article that I was reading did not mention Taiwan. Wasn't brave enough to mention Taiwan. No, yes. <laughs> so, um, uh, yes, Will says, but only one time zone, and that's true. That's, oh. We'll get onto that as part yes, of their culture. Yes, isn't that interesting? It's such yes. a, a broad country. Yeah. So, that's good input, Will. Right. Well done. Yes. Well, it, we'll talk about that in culture when it comes to cohesiveness and being one. Mm. And, and that is part of the time zone. And yet ethnically, there are something like 56 ethnic groups officially recognised in China. Really? Right. Mm. Yes. The dominant group, of course, are referred to in English as the Han yes. Chinese. Mm. And they are by far the majority. 90%. Yeah. But there are literally, you know, 55 other ethnic groups. David in the chat room says, I don't, disagree, I don't disagree with your assertion about history impacting their actions, but they are currently engaged in horrendous human rights violations. We'll get to that. We'll get to that. <laughs> yeah. Let's, let's let, hold on. <laughs> Pump the brakes. Yeah. So geography <laughs> is interesting. Like that's a big country. It's Huge. about the uh, size of Australia plus about a quarter to a third extra on it's top. It's a little bit bigger, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. And a lot of borders to deal with, a lot of neighbours to deal with. So... Um, we're going to talk about history and we were discussing how far back to go. Obviously, um, goes back thousands of years, Paul, with a lot of dynasties coming and going mm. in that time. Ming dynasty, sort of well known for... For vases. For vases. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yes. That's what we know it for. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, often these dynasties would last for, uh... Hundreds of years, and yeah. then disappear and come back, and and sometimes yeah. they would unify mm. large areas of land, and then yes. later somebody else would yes. come and break it up and mm. yes, do things differently. Yes, so but but for our purposes, where we're trying to look at what history has shaped the modern day China, mm. I think it's really important to get a grip of the Opium Wars. So. Okay. Two of them, basically, first in eighteen thirty nine, and the second in eighteen fifty three. And really um, what we had was the British 
smuggling opium into China from India. So there'd always been some opium in China. Indeed, yeah. Used for medicinal purposes, but the British were bringing it in and people were getting high as a kite on it, like and for mind-altering reasons they were taking it. Yeah. And this was causing a major problem in the Chinese um, um, country. So yeah. the... Um, do you know what, just on that point, mm. I, I read something that I didn't know before about this and while opium had been used, as you say, in China before the British started sort of making money out of it by smuggling it in in large quantities, uh, I read that they didn't actually start sort of smoking it in a sense until they had adopted the habit of smoking tobacco. Oh, okay. Which oh, was mixing in- it in. No, well, just the habit of, of inhaling fumes, Okay, so the, so the foreigners introduced the idea of mind-altering use of opium as opposed to the I other use they were doing. I don't know that it, they, that it, it wasn't already being used in a, you know, on, okay. a, on, a, on a limited level for okay. that. But it was uh, tobacco, of course, originally came from North America and spread around the world. You know? Bloody Americans again? I know. But it was the, in this <laughs> yes, case, it was the indigenous the... Americans. Oh, so don't blame like... those. <laughs> that's okay. Middle-aged white fellows. Culturally, yes. Um, yeah, that's okay. But, of course, the, the, the English and others, you know, transported tobacco around the world. And so the, the habit of smoking tobacco had been introduced from America, okay, I think. that's interesting. And so then it took off. And then it had followed as a, mm. an inhalant. So anyway, it was causing problems in China and the Chinese Jiangying Emperor passed many decrees and edicts making the trade illegal in 1729, 1799, 1814, 1831. But smuggling still occurred as the British paid smugglers to take opium into China, causing the population to become more and more addicted. Uh, Continued in 1939, there was a letter written by an emperor to Queen Victoria pleading for the contraband to stop, and that was ignored. So uh, they lost patience and decided to confiscate some of the illegal opium, although they tried to say to them, look, we'll give you some tea in exchange. Like, we're not going to just take this off you. Have some tea instead. And they said, no, (laughs) that's not going to work. And, of course, um, so China resorted to using force and uh, the British... uh, Mounted their, got their troops organised, a much superior naval fleet. Could they had just, mu- far superior ships. Yeah. And, and, and that's important. Arms, yeah. Put a pin in that idea that a far superior naval force came and kicked their butt way back <laughs> uh, in 1839 and that has not been forgotten. Put a pin in that. Mm. Um, so basically kicked their butt and said... Um, forced China to sign a treaty which ceded Hong Kong Island and some surrounding smaller islands to the United Kingdom in perpetuity and established five treaty ports in Shanghai, Canton, Ningpo, Fuchao and and Amoy. And it also demanded $21 million in payments to Great Britain for having the temerity to try and stop the smuggling of illegal opium. Does that sound like a fair arrangement to you? (laughs) Fair to the British. So that was... 1839, and again in 1853, um, uh, there was um, a new imperial commissioner in Canton. He was determined to stamp out the illegal opium trade, had a go at it, of course, again, defeated by um, the British. Um, 
resulting in another treaty which forced China to pay reparations for the expenses of the war, opened a second group of 10 ports of European commerce, legalised the opium trade, like legalise it now, mm. and grant foreign traders and missionaries right to travel within Australia. So Australia? Uh, through Ch- sorry, within China. Where did I get that from? Anyway, so then we had a whole bunch of ports and, you know, we're now up to 15 sort of like zones where these foreigners could basically do what they liked in China and conduct trade, not pay taxes, and basically treat the place as its own, as their own. And um, that's really ugly from a Chinese point of view. So the main European countries that were involved were the United Kingdom, I mean Great Britain, France, Germany was there. Netherlands? The Italians were there. Netherlands? Well, I'll list them in. Possibly. Well, I'll oh, list you have a list. India Trading Company um, would have been involved. I'll, I'll, I'll list them in the sense of the of the Boxer Rebellion. So, oh, okay. So, in 1900, there was a Boxer Rebellion, and you've heard of the Boxer Rebellion. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes, I so, studied Chinese history. Yeah. So what? The, and <laughs> the Boxer Rebellion were called the Boxers because because they fought. Yes, they were like kung fu fighters. That's right. They it was were like fighters. considered Chinese boxing was the sort of kung fu fighting. Okay. So these guys who started this rebellion in the Boxer Rebellion were sort of kung fu fighters, like David Carradine mm. style. Um, and um, but not as cool as David no. Carradine. <laughs> So um, they couldn't take on the navy, so what, they thought they we'll thought box they them. Could, they thought they could. They thought their kung fu <laughs> stuff was. They be also enough. had these uh, beliefs about. I, I think the boxers also. I know the Taiping Rebellion, which was a, an earlier one. They had these ideas about bullets wouldn't hurt them. You yes, know? yeah, it could be the same mob. I think they thought they were going to. Oh, be it was fine. a different group, completely okay. different right. group. Oh, okay. Yeah. So anyway, so in the Boxer Rebellion. Um, Villages in North China had been building resentment against Christian missionaries who ignored tax obligations. Again. <laughs> and abused their extraterritorial rights to protect their congregants against lawsuits. So remember in the Opium Wars special dispensation, you can travel throughout China and do the fuck what you like. Well, mm. um, the Christians took advantage of that and, and so the Chinese again got sick of it. Again, got smashed. This time there was um, what they called the Alliance of Eight Nations, which was America, Austro-Hungarian, British, French, German, Italian, Japanese and Russian, Mm. all formed an alliance to kick the butt of the Chinese and say, no, no, you don't. This this isn't your country. Mm. This is ours. Okay. So that's when we talk about... Colonialism at its worst. Yeah. So... Um, not a proud moment. Yeah, and really, you know, in other countries with the with the colonial powers, they basically took a whole country and controlled the whole thing. But China was too big, I guess. So really, what they did was control these ports and and these centres of commerce, and mm. said, "Well, provided we control these, um, we don't care really what happens in the rural countryside. Um, grow your rice and make your products, provided it all finds its way into a port, and we can export it." That's fine. So, um, so yeah. So, mm. and so when we talk about the hundred years of embarrassment for China, it all starts with these foreign countries mm-hmm. coming in and just punching them on the nose on three different occasions, yeah, repeatedly, and just doing whatever they liked. It gets worse. <laughs> we'll get onto that. Um, 
So really we've got um, an imperial sort of emperor type, empress type situation up until 1911 when the empress at that time died and we had a bit of a revolution ball. So, And there had been revolutionary elements building up to that. It didn't just happen overnight, by the way. Mm. Uh, from the late 19th century, um, you know, intellectuals and scholars and various people who were dissatisfied with the system, Mm. had been travelling abroad. You know, a lot of them went to Japan, for example. Others went to America and Europe. And they had been learning from Westerners these new ideas about uh, republics and democracy and things Mm -hmm. like that. So Mm -hmm. it had been building up over a period of time. And as you say, in Mm. November 1911, they had the official sort of – announcement that China was going to become a republic and do away with the emperor system. So at the beginning of 1912, they announced the establishment of the Republic of China. But China being such a big place, very hard to gain control over the whole place and really it descended into between 1916 and 1928 a kind of a warlord era. Mm -hmm. So regions controlled by warlords and we had the rise of now. How would you pronounce the um, well, Chiang Kai Shek and the Kuomintang? The Kuomintang. 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 Yes. Okay. And doesn't look Chiang like that. On, doesn't look like that on my screen. Yeah, I know. Chiang Kai Shek. Look, I don't speak Chinese, yeah. everybody, but I've you know hung around enough people. Kuomintang. Uh, yeah, Kuomintang. And the guy Chiang Kai Shek, we usually call him. And I saw in another, another book today. Uh, the Chinese pronounce his name completely differently, something like Jiang, Jiang Xi or something like that. Right, okay. So we'll just say Chiang Kai-shek and, yeah. and I might say Kuomintang. Kuomintang. Kuomintang, okay. So the Which Kuomintang. means uh, something like uh, the Min is people mm. and Guo, what was it? Guo is like common people or something. It's like okay. the the Common People's Party or something right. like that, I believe. That would make sense. Yeah. So that was sort of a nationalist party and they were looking to um, take control and and at the same time there was the communists developed uh, led by Mao. Eventually. Not initially, no, by the way. Yeah, He wasn't the actual... Not in the early days. Central founder, mm. but he was one of the first... Yeah, uh, first a few later. To come and up. initially the communists kind of were within the Kuomintang as part of them. And yes, then, they joined Yes, and together. they kind of worked together, but then they had disagreements yes. and, and broke up. So They had a sort of yeah. a bit like our Liberal Party and National Party. You right. know, sometimes they're friends, yeah. sometimes they hate yeah. each other. Yeah, well, it got very bitter. <laughs> it's not going on. So, so you've got uh, this new sort of, you know, you've had thousands of years of, you know, monarchy, basically. Yeah. You've got this foreign... Uh, countries running around um, taking whatever they wanted to and you've got this sort of new political movement trying to establish itself, which is now splintered into the Kuomintang. Yeah, they actually – well, they started separately. And, yes. And then at some point in the early 1920s, they sort of came to a, an agreement that yes. they would work together for the national good. Yes. But, you know, they – they were, I think they were always suspicious of each other and secretly probably planning to eventually ditch the other one. Yes. 
but they they managed to work to and even in 1927 in Shanghai there was actually a um the the Guomindang led by our friend Chiang Kai-shek actually tried to destroy the the communists yes and in Shang- they had this big roundup and they apparently recruited local criminal gangs to help the police mm-hmm. so they rounded up several thousand communist party members and basically topped them all right they murdered uh, I think in Shanghai, at least a few thousand. In 29. 1927, 1927. 1927 in April. Yeah. yeah. So, um, so then uh, moving on to 1931, uh, we had Japan effectively seized Manchuria, which is an area in the north. So, in the yeah. so they'd basically... Um, took control in the same way that these different foreigners had different ports that they basically said, look, we're in control here, leave it to us. The, the Chinese more or less did that to the whole of Manchuria yeah. in the north. And um, So North Korea and South Korea didn't exist at that point in time? It was just Korea, yeah. Right. It was just Korea. Was but just Manchuria Korea. is above Korea. Uh, however, um, we that, should mention... Manchuria that- is part of the more of the mainland a big chunk of the mainland in the north. Yeah, it's it's okay. a, a, quite a large province China in the proper northeast. and the, a big chunk in the north. Okay. Yep. It's up sort of where... A, above North Korea. Yes, yeah. where, where North Korea butts with the onto peninsula the mainland. Would, yes. Mm. That, it's up around the Korean there. peninsula. But we should yeah. mention that Korea was actually a Japanese colony at right. that time. Yeah. It didn't just go... From, they didn't go from Japan and invade Manchuria. Right. They took control of the Korean peninsula in 1905 mm-hmm. and uh-huh. in 1910 they declared it a part of Japan. Mm. So they actually just moved So before from, that it was China? No. No, it was Korea. It was Korea. Yeah. Ah. So the Japanese, in they had a war with China too in 1895 and they mm. took control, they took possession of Taiwan yep. as sort of spoils of war. Yep. And then yeah. in 1905 they invaded and took control of the Korean Peninsula and in 1910 they declared it was part of Jap- the Japanese Empire. Right. So they actually, the Japanese troops went from Korea directly across the border into mm. Manchuria and then, yep. and you guys have seen the movie The Last Emperor, right? No. Uh, what was his name? bits of it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I forget his name now, but he actually left Beijing at some point when he was a young adult. He ended up as a, a puppet emperor in Manchuria under the control of the Japanese. Ah, uh, okay, right, yes, yes. Um, so just on the Korea bit, of course, heading forward to the end of the Second World War, mm. and they say, well, Japan, you can't have the things that you've taken recently. Korea then becomes You're up not- for grabs. Yeah end up with a big fight over Korea. Yeah. So um, so anyway, uh, so 1931, Japan effectively seized Manchuria in terms of control. And in 1934, we have the Long March. So, yes. Right. Paul, the Long March. The Long March. The Long March was where after the massacre of the communists in, uh, you know, in the late 20s, the, they basically had to scatter into the countryside and and hide, you know, mm-hmm. and they had considerable numbers of men. Something like eighty thousand, I think, went on the long march. Eighty or ninety thousand mm-hmm. people went on the long march, and they. I read, I think, only a few thousand 
survived the long march. A few thousand out of out of eighty or ninety thousand. Essentially, there was a stronghold kind of or safety zone in the north, in the far northwest. Yep. Yes. So they basically escaped the clutches of the Kuomintang. Kuomintang and and set off on a very circuitous route to the north. Yes, being harassed and attacked yes. along the way by the Guomindang armies. And so it was quite an, a feat led of Led by Mao. Yes. By, led by Mao, yeah. Uh, yeah. 6,000 miles, um, 80,000 set off and only 9,000 made that's it. That's it, yeah. And that's after accounting for the fact that they picked up some along the way. So wow. who knows how many of the actual original 80,000 actually made it. Um, yeah. Well, some they, probably deserted. Did they walk that far? Yes. 6,000 miles. On foot, yeah. yeah. It took them a year. Some yeah. probably deserted, Jeez. but a lot were just dying or being yeah. killed in various clashes they had with the Nationalist Army. Yes. Although um, I guess the whole thing about the communists was that their sympathies were with the peasants. So there would have been some friendly support amongst the peasantry mm. because they were about mm. the peasants, but... We're talking about a country that's now just run by various warlords who had all sorts of loyalties to different groups. So what a minefield, skipping your way through China for a year to get to some safe haven. Like, well, well done, Mao. (laughs) I'm sure they would have had quite a lot of popular support among the peasantry in the countryside. But, of course, as all armies do, they would have just taken what they needed anyway, whether the peasants gave it to them or not. Got to live off the land. They lived off the land, which is basically living off the peasants in the land. Mm. Yep. Right. Uh, And then we just have to understand that uh, in 1937, Japan invaded full on at that stage Mm. and basically uh, where they'd sort of had Manchuria as their territory that they managed, they now just said, well, that's just Japanese territory now and they – they started full-scale sort of operations on on taking over mm. China, and although the Japanese also didn't never tried to control the whole countryside, no. they basically stuck to the coast and the main because uh, it's too big. The main you know it's, metropolitan centre. This is the thing; it's so big. So you kind of had a three-way fighting where the communists and the uh, the Kuomintang. <laughs> Can I just say the Kuomintang? Kuomintang. <laughs> uh And the Japanese fighting each other yeah. at different times. And um, to some extent, uh, the communists were letting um, Chiang Kai-shek and his group do most of the fighting because they were just trying to save their energy and escape mm. to some extent. But they'd fight the... Japanese when they'd come across them. So, and, and they yeah, actually yeah. did coordinate mm. to some degree together to fight right. against the Japanese yes. at times. Yeah, a very complicated sort of very three-way um, situation happening then. And, of course, in 1937, now we're just thinking about shaping of their current Japanese, uh, current Chinese sentiment, we had the Nanjing massacre. Nanjing, we're happy with that pronunciation. <laughs> I'll, I'll let it go. <laughs> Look, I don't speak Chinese, so I'm not an authority on Chinese pronunciation. Basically, the soldiers of the Imperial Japanese Army murdered Chinese civilians and disarmed combatants. Um, The numbers wildly vary, anywhere between 40,000 and 300,000. But, and Nanjing was the capital at the time, but it was a particularly brutal, nasty Mm. raping and pillaging of a city and Mm. that had completely surrendered and it was actually there were foreigners in town who were witness to mm, all of this indeed. and 
and just thousands of women raped every night and pregnant women had their babies cut out of them and just the most awful, gruesome, The, the bit that I read things. about that was that the Japanese soldiers were having competitions to see how, mm. how long it could take them to chop the heads off 100 mm. Chinese yeah. uh, civilians yes. and they were reporting it in the, China, the Japanese papers like it was a baseball result, yes. you know. So I had I had some I had some Chinese homestay. British colonialists look yeah. like uh, angels. Make them look like good guys. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I've had some Chinese homestays with me over the years, and one boy in particular would have nothing to do with Japanese mm. because his the town and his family history was this town, and and uh, he felt very very strongly about uh, the massacre that had occurred in 1937, mm. and as Best I tried to say to him, "Live and let live." Um, Put it he behind your Yeah, <laughs> he wasn't up for it. So, yeah. um, although I can also remember when my dad was alive, we also had a little Chinese homestay boy stay with us for a couple of weeks. Maybe, mm. maybe he was only young. He was only like nine or something. He was tiny, and we took him down the coast to show him the beach. And he met my dad, and my dad made the comment, "Oh, I've brought one of the enemy." Oh. <laughs> But my dad had been a prisoner of war on the Burma Railway. He was yeah. entitled to say what it, but he was he was okay. So, but yeah, he did say. I said People he who one of the enemy experienced something like that firsthand, of yeah. course, would never ever forget it. Yeah. And but the Chinese government, the communist-led Chinese government, have very deliberately um, cultivated that historical resentment. Right. Against the Japanese. Right. And even when I visited China about six or seven years ago, um, you know, young Chinese people, you know, if I asked them about it, they would like say, oh, you know, we don't really like the Japanese very much. Others, others were more open-minded, but I did meet young Chinese who told me they didn't like the Japanese people. I, I think Chinese television still has a lot of oh, yes. movies Every day. anti-Japanese sort yes. of movies. Yeah. That's right. They have um, war movies. It's like Bridge Over the River Kwai is sort of their every, you know, their version of that every, <laughs> well, every it's day. It's like yeah. the movies we used to watch when we were kids, right. the Americans against the Germans. Right. For them, it's the Chinese against the Japanese. Yes. And yes. the Japanese are the bad guys, of course. Yes. Yeah. So What's the you, feeling like in Japan about Chinese? Ah, uh, it's uh, very uh, They're different. in denial. Very different because the Japanese mm. basically decided after the Second World War was finished, when they were rebuilding Japan, mm. in their wisdom, which I don't think was wisdom, they decided to bury it. Mm. And they, you know, they, they do teach history and they do teach Japanese people, of course, that there was a war, mm. that Japan was, much, you know, involved, not, yeah. but they don't teach very many of the gruesome details. Yeah, mm. and compared to the Germans, completely different. Mm. So the Germans really Apologetic. own it and mm. say, this they is did. what our forefathers did yeah. and how bad was that, yeah. whereas the, nowhere near that sort of recognition no. by the Japanese. And, so. in fact, I've detected among some young Japanese acquaintances a sort of feeling that Japan was... Um, defamed excessively. Right. You know what I mean? Because they don't learn all the gruesome details. Mm. Mm. I saw a documentary film where some old uh, Japanese ex-soldiers who had served in Manchuria were interviewed and these guys wanted to come clean. Before they died, they wanted just to tell 
the, the truth of the matter. And they were describing horrific events, you know, where they'd go into villages, they would literally rape the women, kill everybody, burn everything. And this, these old guys were, they really felt bad about it, you know, and they wanted to get it off their chest. Mm. That yeah. it was horrific. Yeah. Yep. And, of course, the 12th man is qualified to um, speak about Japan because you lived there for I did live there and I also studied Japanese mm. history and yeah. politics mm. and society mm. as well as Chinese. How long did you live there? In Japan, about six, seven years. Six mm. or seven years, yeah. Right, moving on. So World War Two, And my reading of history, and I was looking at the history of the world from the 20th to the 21st century by J.S. Grenville was the book I was referring to, and essentially um, America was looking at Japan and Japan at that point had invaded China and basically was looking at some way of keeping out of war with with Japan and they were trying to reach peaceful negotiations to avoid it, but the sticking point was China and the USA said, uh, it's a condition of any settlement we have. You cannot have China. And the Japanese insisted that they must have China. So really there would have been some, um, arguably some sort of settlement amongst them. Japan would have been, Japan needed the resources. Yeah, they've got nothing, have they? Yeah, small island and... No coal, no iron. So, so they actually did have some coal, but not in those but they, quantities. They certainly needed the resources and they saw themselves as a world power that um, that needed to acquire territory as mm. a legitimate world power does. And they, they saw all these other countries in exactly, China and exactly. thought, well... They had seen the European yes. colonists, yes. colonialists, imperialists, yeah. mm. and they said, we can, we can do that too. Yep. And they create. They were in the process of creating what they called the Greater East Asia Co-Prosperity. Um, I forget the last word, but anyway, right. that, mm. that was what they called. Yeah. Like trying to create an empire. Well, they had this idea that rather than Europeans colonising other parts of Asia, they should be doing it. Yes, okay. Asia was their territory, their mm. patch. Mm. Yeah. Okay. And so yeah. So when we look at the way that uh, the USA is viewing. China today, it wasn't that long ago that the USA was protecting China mm-hmm. and saying... And, in fact, China was yeah. an ally of the Americans Indeed. during the Second World War. And in War. the Second World War, China was an ally yep. fighting mm-hmm. against the Japanese. So History's messy. And Japan yes. was our ally during the First World Indeed. War. Indeed it was. And if you go to Western Australia, to um, Albany, yes. um, there are photos from the First World War as Japanese ships yes, escorted our right. ships across the Indian Ocean. Escorted so, our troops. Wow. Yes. Yes. Wow. So it is messy. <laughs> yes. So, yes. So China, basically USA, one of the reasons they went to war was over protecting China, um, hence the Second World War. One of obvious other yeah. reasons going on, not least of all Hitler. But anyway. you, can, you can sort of understand the Japanese position, though, in a way, because... Mm. They would have been looking at the Americans and saying, well, you know, you guys are sort of spreading your tentacles down through Central and South America, mm-hmm. so aren't you doing the same thing as us, yeah. you know? Of course. Mm. Yeah. Yep. So the Japanese started a fight with China, yep. America, Australia, 
Because they basically said, we're taking China. They are very mm. confident, yeah. the Japanese. Indeed. And in 1905... They, they took had a, on everyone at once. They had a, a naval uh, battle with the Russians and soundly beat the Russians. Yeah. Because they so had the new Russians, they took on the British-designed well. warships. Mm. Right, moving on. So um, 1949, Mao wins the Civil War. So they'd been battling with Chiang Kai-shek and... He and his followers from the Kuomintang. Kuomintang. Oh, look, I've got to write. <laughs> Hang on. Just going to just say the Guo. Just point Guo. At, at the 12th man every time you go to Guo. say it and he'll say yep. it for you. Min. Min. Dang. 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 You know dung like cow well, dung? Min dung. That's it. Well, min dung. <laughs> One of the listeners that, that is going to make a YouTube <laughs> clip of all of our pronunciations. <laughs> well, min dung. Back to back. When I go to a, a – if I have um, – Yeah, I don't a, know the tones for it. So. Right, okay. You know, but I feel if I was at a, uh, a Chinese restaurant and the trolley's coming around, Guam in Dong. Yeah, they'll give you a funny look. We'll talk about uh, Chinese restaurants as we go on. In oh, our, wouldn't you love a yum channel? In, in hour four. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> when, yes, when I hope you've got plenty of sleep, <laughs> listeners. It's going to be a long one. Okay, so 1949, Mao wins the Civil War. How did he win it? How did he, how did he, how, what was his uh, secret of his success? Just, I, think, I think the Guomingdung were um, uh, fatigued from fighting the Japanese. Fighting the, very good was. Mm. That is one of the reasons, yes. Yeah. They had um, taken some heavy hits in mm. that fight and I, so... I think it was it was a pretty close call mm. uh, for a while, you mm. know. Like the, yep. the communists didn't always have the upper hand in that yep. civil war is my understanding. Yep. But they finally did prevail. Yep. And so Chiang Kai-shek and the Kuomintang, yes. they Out retreated to they what we call Taiwan, yeah. which was an island uh, off the coast yes. of mainland and, China. And you know that the, the Chinese insist it's part of their, their territory and, and quite fairly, I think, in, in many respects. Mm. But did you know it was not even uh, a proper Chinese province until 1885? Well, over the oh, millennia, the it must have... It. it was uh, a backwater. Okay, but uh, over the millennia, it must have come in and out of Chinese control at different times. Well, it was a backwater. It was okay. a kind of... You know, a rock over there that what's yeah, it could, what's the good? That's right. It had a bunch of Aborigines, right, living on it, as okay. we know. Right. And do you know the Aborigines on uh, Taiwan are actually Austronesian, which is they're in the same sort of language and cultural group as the Malays, you know, Malay people like right. Indonesians, Phil, Filipinos, Malaysians, that group, and Polynesians too. Right. So they're in that group. They still exist as a group. Yes. Yep. So anyway. They've retreated to Taiwan. The and, Republic of China. Yes. And that is considered the legitimate China mm. in the UN until 1971. Mm. It's the and Republic of China. It, That's right. And it had the seat at the UN Security it Council mm. instead of mainland China. Till mm. 1971, yeah. dear yeah. listener. Until everyone that? decided... Uh, this is ridiculous. Mainland <laughs> yeah. China, we're probably going to get better value out of... Dealing with mainland China. Yeah. Mainland China of... being the People's Republic of China. Exactly. Right. Alex in the chat room says, a big factor in Mao's win was the capture of lots of Japanese military hardware when they surrendered. Oh. Ah. Good point, Alex. Thank you for that. Very good. Right. So um, Mao's won the Civil War. 
Remember last week we were talking about um, communism and, and, and the naming of things doesn't necessarily mean, like the People's <laughs> Democratic Republic of Congo didn't mean it was democratic. So yeah. Mao wins and he calls his government the People's Democratic Dictatorship. <laughs> you're, you're, you're closing Is that your eyes. true? Yes. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. The People's Democratic, the people's democratic Dictatorship. So it was like the USA. Uh, (laughs) A democratic dictatorship. That's according to my history book that I just (laughs) really. Yeah, Ah. you might you might fact check me on that one, dear listener. But that's that's what it was called in the early days. Really. So um, Mao, of course, is a red hot Marxist Leninist. Like he's full bore on the good solid communist theory, Mm. like hardcore. So his first target was landlords. Let's return the the land to the peasants. Mm. That was. That it was, was all about class. Yes. Yep. So, and um, so, um, so that was his first step. Um, and then, so he took power in 1949. If we fast forward to 1958, 1960, we have the Great Leap Forward. Paul, thoughts on the Great Leap yes, Forward? Yes, the Great Leap Forward. Not, not so great and not so forward. Very, very not Good intentions. Great. Yeah, well, his Mao's intention was to develop industry yes. uh, and and ramp up production, both in uh, industries in the city and also agricultural production. But he figured that the way things were, where the land was divided up into a lot of very small plots for each family, yep. he decided to, you know, make them into big communes. Yes, where uh, people would uh, work together for the greater good. Yes. But unfortunately, um, the old landlords, you know, they, they were the managers of the land. They knew what they were doing. And even the individual small farmer peasants probably knew what they were doing with their little plot of land. What they found was when they grouped them all together into, you know, big, big mobs of people allegedly working together, it just didn't work as well. Mm. I, I guess when you're not working on your own plot of land, you don't feel there's much in it for you either as an individual. Mm. So you might not tend to work as hard as you did if you were working on just your little piece of land. But anyway, production didn't increase rapidly apparently. But the worst thing about the Great Leap Forward was their attempts to industrialise. Mm. And Mao had all the, had, a, had a few hair-brain, harebrained schemes, mm. the most notable of which was his idea that instead of building big steelworks, you know, as, as happens in... Yes. You know, industrialised countries. Thanks, yes. Warren. There'd be a series of smaller industrial yeah. sort of things. He said yes. everybody can build a blast furnace, right. a little backyard blast. Well, not everybody, but, yes. you know, all over the place. People mm. were erecting these improvised small blast furnaces yes. and they were going house to house c- collecting scraps of metal that they mm. could put in and melt down right. and use for something useful. So people mm. were literally giving up their, you know, their, their garden tools and their cutlery and all sorts of stuff that was actually quite useful. Yes. But what they found was these little blast furnaces didn't actually work. They would melt the metal, but they had no efficient way to get the molten metal out and do anything with it. So what right. they ended up with was these blocks of molten metal 
that they couldn't do anything with all over the countryside, you know? Yes, yep. So it was, it was a catastrophe. Yep. So the Great Leap Forward was about co-ops being merged into huge communes, including agriculture and industrial units, and it was chaos and production plummeted. And we can put him down for about 30 million deaths that's as right. a result. That's right. So that's, that's a pretty chaotic event. I also read that Mao, or I shouldn't say Mao, but anyway, the communist government had storehouses of grain in mm. certain areas and they wouldn't distribute it to the peasants. They, right. were, they were keeping it perhaps for the military or perhaps for some other purpose and they were literally just letting people Die of starvation, and millions did. So around this time then, uh, Deng Xiaoping, uh, who would later become leader of China, was one of the sort of higher-ups, and he was involved in trying to reform China out of this mess. Uh, Mao thought he was a bourgeois and a betrayer of the revolution, and uh, he had to be very politically clever to survive those times to try and get um, sort of change, but not end up on the wrong side of now. So yes. you have, you know, it's full credit to your political skills Indeed. to survive that. And in process. fact, he was um, during the Cultural Revolution. We should mention that one as well. Oh, uh, we're going to get to the, oh, yes, okay. okay. Uh, so 1966 to 68. So we've um, where the Great Leap Forward is 58 to 60. So Mao takes a bit of a breath. About six years later, he starts the Cultural Revolution, which was akin to a kind of a civil war where these Red Guard units were formed and they would denounce teachers, professionals and anyone in authority with Mao's wife being a big player in the whole situation. Yes. So go ahead with she Deng and all that. Oh, Deng Xiaoping. Well, he was, he was uh, forced to, what's the word, where they uh, yeah, denounce Self-criticise? Or, or, yeah, self-criticise. Like yeah. But uh, I, what, I, what I read about the Cultural Revolution was Unlike Stalin, when Stalin wanted to get rid of his enemies, he did it from inside. Right. You know, he would have them, have people arrested on trumped-up charges. Yes. They'd be interrogated. There were show trials you've probably read mm. about, mm. And, and then they were executed. Mm. Mao decided that rather than do it internally, he would just encourage the common people to take up the, the cause of revolution, you know, constant revolution, mm. And they did the work for him yes. and they, they would, you know. So these Red Guards were youth essentially you, who, who were basically maniacal in their approach. Like even their parents yes. they would attack or they would not help save from others. No, and so, their teachers especially yes. were targeted. So these were sort of beatings and, and Sometimes abuse. Sometimes they were, and, people were killed. Yes. Yeah. yeah. It was brutal. And even members of the Communist Party, like the hierarchy oh, yes. itself was was rattled because they were authority figures. That's right. So nobody was safe. Except like, Mao. Yes. And his very close people. Yes. So, so and that, that went was, on from 66 to roughly 69, I think. Yeah, somewhere yeah. around there. I've got 68 on my notes, but, yep. Mm. Um, so, so we had the Great Leap Forward, we had the Cultural Revolution, and then after the Cultural Revolution we had what was described as forced migration where Mao turned on the Red Guards and other people, and moved about 20 million people into the countryside to be yes. re-educated. So it was a sort of a forced migration into rural areas mm. uh, soon after, and that cleaned up the Red Guards who'd been, even Mao thought, had been running amok. But the thing about Mao was he had absolutely no loyalty to anybody. He was a bastard. Like, 
He just turned on Ruthless. people um, yeah. and, uh, yeah, very difficult man. So, um, all right, moving on. At some point, uh, uh, Mao gets past it and uh, you say Dong Xiaoping? Well, Dong, I, I, Dong, I pronounce Dong, it Dong. Dong Xiaoping? Yeah. He takes control. And um, so he is one who wants to modernise China and move it into normality and what yeah. we see as normal business. Mm-hmm. So he was the one who, who kick-started all that. And uh, what I read in this book was that in Soviet Union, it was really hard to make change because of all the vested interests that people already had control of their little spheres of influence. Mm-hmm. And why would they vote to change anything? Because they're powerful people. But the Cultural Revolution had just um, had gone through the party and the elite and had completely um, decimated so many people with vested interests that it was kind of easier for Dung to get things done because there weren't the same rusted invested interests because the Red Guard had rooted them out <laughs> and um, mm. created havoc. So he was kind of in a chaos situation that allowed him to probably act quicker than he could have otherwise. He, he didn't really institute the reforms until Mao had died, I think, which right. was 76, was it? Right. When Mao died, 76 um, not, or 77? Not, not too sure, but he was certainly, that's what he wanted to do and he would have been working as best he could yeah, given probably, the circumstances. Yeah, when when yep. Mao was in his dotage. Yeah. Yep. So he reversed. So Mao's power came from his control of the military, I assume? Uh, well, <clears throat> even the military got a bit divided by the Red Guards. So he he had this cult. He created a sort of a, like Stalin, Mm. he created a cult figure. A cult of of personality. Yes. And he had his little red book had come out and it was this cult of personality. I wonder when he turned on the Red Guards Mm. that they didn't turn back on him, you know. Well, at that point he probably used the military to shift them into the countryside Mm -hmm. and... um, Everyone was happy to get rid of the Red Guards. And there were point. there were actually cases mm. where the military was sent out to suppress the Red Guards. Right, yes. So they didn't have everything yeah. there. So, so, he, power so when he abandoned the, the Red Guards and said, that's too much, um, he just used other powers to, yeah. He was a military leader, wasn't he? So Yes, sense. but he was yes. crazy. He was yeah. better as a military leader than he was as a peacetime leader, in fact. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Um, there was one other uh, campaign that it's probably worth mentioning, and that was in the mid 1950s. So before the Great Leap Forward, there was something they called um, the 100 Flowers Movement or something, and it was mm. this idea that sounds nice. Everybody was encouraged <laughs> to say what they really thought about everything. Yeah, let a thousand to flowers to criticize bloom. the yeah. party or anything. It was basically okay. We're just going to let everybody say exactly what they really think. Go for it, guys. Let's have an idea shower. That's right. Yeah. And guess what happened to the people who criticised the party? <laughs> yeah, that's yes. right. Mao used it as a means of finding that's out. That's right. He rooted out get, his to get, enemies. To get rid of his enemies. By he inviting up. them to criticise the party. That's right, yes. So people, the smart ones, wouldn't say too much because they thought, hang on a minute, yeah, he could turn could on me. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Mm, yeah. And it was. It was indeed, Yeah. Right, so um, Deng's in control, 1986, Tiananmen Square massacre. So uprising. Um, 31 years ago. Yeah. So, Paul, thoughts on that? Oh, <clears throat> well, 
It was it was a fairly spontaneous movement, is my take mm-hmm. on it, among particularly young Chinese who probably quite rightly thought that the country had developed enough economically and, you know, materially, and now it was time to uh, liberalise the political scene a bit. Mm-hmm. So they were demanding, and of course by this time young Chinese people had some exposure to what was going on in the outside world, in the mm-hmm. West, of course, and, uh, you know, got to see Western movies and could see how affluent people were living in Europe and North America and Australia and and Japan, you know, the old enemy. And they were like, well, that seems to be related to a liberal political system. Mm-hmm. So, yes, we want that too. Yep. And, of course, it was crushed. It was totally crushed. And, and it wasn't just in Beijing, by the way. We mm-hmm. think of it as the Tiananmen Square incident. And Tiananmen Square is a, a large square uh, which lies between the the large government buildings, you know, what we would think of as the parliament building, like mm-hmm. the Great Hall of the People on one side and on another side is the old uh, for, so-called Forbidden City, which was the old imperial palace complex. So it's a very large square and that's where the students and protesters congregated for several weeks until... Mm. As we know, it was crushed. So I think the government brought in a lot of outsiders. Uh, Sorry, that. what I was going to say yep. was it wasn't just Beijing. It actually, mm. similar things, perhaps not quite on the same scale, I'm not sure, but there were similar prote- protests in other Chinese cities. So mm. it wasn't just mm. Beijing. Mm. Anyway, that little um, note of uh, dem- wanting democracy was quickly snuffed out. So and The um, one thing I learned from my research was mm. that uh, the original gathering was... Um, uh, because a former Communist Party leader had just died, oh, okay. a guy by the name of Hugh Yobang. Okay. And the, uh, he, he was a former Communist Party leader, but he worked to introduce democratic reform in China. Yes, mm. interesting. So in that ex- was the original purpose of the because demonstration was yeah. just a, mm. a recognition of his death and then yeah. it turned into a... Let's push for democracy. Yeah. And there were one or two other members of the top ranks of the party who actually visited the protest site to express support, support, sympathy, whatever. And one in particular, I know he was basically put in under house arrest and, and stayed under house arrest for the rest of his life mm-hmm. after that. Mm. Okay, we've got to move on. Um, so... In the early 2000s, according to my history book I read, they actually considered removing the word communist from the name of the party. Really? Mm. But they thought people might think, well, I, I've joined the Communist Party and if this isn't the Communist Party, we'll start another Communist Party. And so they didn't want a competing mm. party to be started up, so they decided to keep the name. And we were talking before last week about are they communist or something else? Yes. Just because communism is in the name, they actually yeah. feel they don't want it, but Seems they couldn't get crazy, rid of it because it? it might encourage an opposition movement, which, of course, they don't want. And, again, I read in another part that said, um, the party today represents a de facto political protection racket for those in private business. So that's, <laughs> that's one way of looking at it. Um, and oh, one other thing I wanted to mention in the history was uh, the Taiwan Straits crisis. Mm. So in 1995, Taiwan was having some elections coming up Mm. and the Chinese 
were considering some sort of um, missile testing and other things in the area mm. as a sort of warning to the voters of Taiwan to vote in the correct direction. Yeah. And this was seen as an intimidation. And so I think it was Clinton administration gathered a few warships together and sailed around uh, in Taiwan to say, don't fire any missiles mm. in this area. And it did stop the Chinese from doing that. But didn't they sign some agreement in 1992, Taiwan and China, which Taiwan then reneged on? That's That was my reading of it. I haven't heard of that. Yeah. But, um, yeah. Uh, I'll research that. You keep Okay. Going. All right. So that's an important thing to remember as well when we're looking at this whole South China Sea and the creation of these islands and these fortresses that are being built there mm-hmm. because as sure as eggs – when China was again humiliated by the Americans sailing their war vessels in the Straits of Taiwan, they said, we've got to do something to make sure this doesn't happen again. And now they've built up military capacity on those islands and also just in terms of ships. Which are quite I, far away from Taiwan, I should Yeah, add. but in terms of the whole right. region. In principle, they wanted to be able to say, this is our backyard yep. and we will... Dictate what happens here. And if the same thing was to happen today, I don't think the Americans would be brave enough to sail their ships around there. They, they still would, do it, do you know? Well, in the same way that they did it A few then, weeks ago, they sailed a couple of ships through the Taiwan Strait. Yes, but in that situation, they would think twice about it. It certainly would put pressure on it. So when we look at why has China gone and created these man-made islands and put these fortresses on them Mm. and built up its naval power, they must be considering an aggressive move against the region. You could say, well, look at their history. The British Navy belted them on the nose on several occasions, um, causing them to lose all sorts of stuff during the Opium Wars. Plus, in recent times, the American Navy just sailed in and did whatever it wanted to. Mm. So... If I was the Chinese after those incidents, I would have done the same thing. <clears throat> and, mm. you know, if you were a Chinese leader looking after Chinese interests, you'd do the same thing. So when we consider it in that light of all that history, it does give it a different flavour. It's absolutely mm. understandable. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So that's the whole point of this particular podcast is to mm. put these things forward and go, well, from their point of view, challenge I, your thinking. I, now I understand some of that history. Mm. I yep. get it. Yeah. Yep. So the 1992 consensus yep. is a political term coined by the Kuomintang politician Su Chi, referring to the outcome of a meeting in 1992 between the semi-official representatives of the People's Republic of China, of mainland China, and the Republic of China and of Taiwan, and they come to a consensus. And the Kuomintang um, and the Communist Party of China have now a disagreement on what that consensus actually was. But the well, Communist look at Party, the document of, and see it. the Communist Party of China, only recognised the consensus that Taiwan is now to be officially recognised after 1992 as part of mainland China. Right. But from the reading that I did. The Kuomintang then got voted out 
and a new party was installed in Taiwan and they said, we don't recognise that agreement. Right. Okay. So... But surely now, the Taiwan that's why Taiwan is surely kind Ta- of a country on its own, but yeah. kind of not. And surely the Kuomintang would not have said, "Oh yeah, Taiwan's really kind of part of China." Like, uh, so the Kuomintang claims that such a consensus exists with different meanings of China. Right. Do you know? Ironically, so they're, we're part yeah, okay. of China, okay. but what so, does China? So mean? they're just yeah. bullshitting each other. Where they're just trying to come to no. This is not a. There's no halfway point. In there's no compromise between Taiwan and mainland China. Like there can't be. There well, can't. interestingly, there's a lot of Chinese investment in Taiwan. Yep. And there are Taiwanese companies who have factories in the mainland. Right. Mm. So there's commerce going on between them. Yeah. But there's no the UN halfway point in terms Taiwan, of Taiwan, though. Uh, is, there's no halfway point between the two of them in terms of recognition. You know, then there's no way the Taiwanese are going to give China any sort of formal control over there. Although, no, and neither is there going to be. Uh, and there's no way that, the other way. No way so. that mainland China is going to recognise that it doesn't have the right to yes, do that. So, so. There's, there's no, that. so they'll draw up a document that have weasel words and you know different interpretations mm. to try and kick the can down the road. From Taiwan's point of view, mm. not so that issues are not forced. One so. more interesting fact: in the mm. last election that they had uh, just recently in Taiwan, in Taiwan yeah. the Kuomintang, which is the old party of Chiang Kai-shek, yes. oh, they're back in. No, no, they lost the election, but they actually were the, part of their election platform was closer ties with mainland China. Isn't that bizarre? <laughs> right. Okay. And the Democratic Party, or I forget what they call them, uh, the, the party that won, which is the party of the current president, mm. were saying, no, 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 we want to be independent. I wonder if they'd been infiltrated. Well, the Kuomintang, yeah. yes. More I, than I, likely. I wonder if they'd been infiltrated. More than likely the, the, the Communist Party has has agents all over Taiwan. Yes. So as you'd imagine. that sounds to me like that mm. could have happened. Yeah. Yeah. In the and, same and way. And they're aware of it, of course, and yeah. they, they go to great lengths yep. to try and weed out the infiltrators. Okay. So that's history up till today. Uh, that would have taken Cameron Riley um, and his podcast about three months to get through. Cameron, Cameron's <laughs> in the chat room, so that's why, that's why I mentioned it. He's probably it. pulling his hair it's out t- as he well. He probably is. Chinese history in a nutshell. Sorry, Cameron, for rattling through that in that short period of time, but I'm sure you understand. Let's, let's talk about... Um, Let's talk about culture yes. now because it's the other thing that shapes people. Indeed it does. So, um, so I Googled Chinese culture and came up to a website and I've got a link to it and uh, a couple of different things to think about in terms of seclusion. So for two millennia, the Chinese empire was one of the most advanced and innovative civilizations in the world. Uh, the Chinese considered themselves the epicentre of the world for centuries. Um, so the dynasties showed no real interest in getting involved in global politics. Um, as Western and Eastern worlds advanced trade and began to globalise, China continued to be a secluded and conservative country into the 20th century. Um, So life was largely contained in the country's borders with a closed economy until 1978 and closed borders until 1974. Mm. So... Would we call them xenophobic? Well, maybe, or just a a firm belief that China is the beginning and the end of what's important. So when people talk about 
expansion lots of, of similarities with the United States. Well, well <laughs> I can't find any yet because what I'm saying is when you're thinking about expansionist China that is everybody's oh, bogeyman okay. at the moment, the history of the country and its thought process until quite recently has not been expansionist. It's mm. been very inward-looking mm. compared to most other countries of a sim, you know, it's part of the culture of the place. Yeah. Um, is fair comment? Yeah, now you could say yeah, that's completely changed in the last 20 years or whatever. But spent you spent more time fighting but, each other than fighting. But, but you have to say that external nations. They haven't states. been particularly interested in external matters historically. Because they've been fighting okay. each other? So, uh, well. Paul, in terms of the basic shape of China as we know it today, is, is obviously at the edges there's been movement to and fro, but is, is it kind of where it's been for a couple of millennia or not? Not like, really, no. Right, okay, they no, quite the, a lot in the recent... Han, the Han Chinese civilization, the Chinese proper, if you like, uh-huh. was the North China Plain and to some extent, you know, the Yangtze River, which flows into the sea around Shanghai or somewhere like that. So there were these two major areas of Han Chinese dense populated areas. And then they they little by little moved south and moved west into areas in the mountainous western and southwestern part of China and the northwest. In fact, Manchuria was occupied by the the Manchus, or the Manchu as they call them, which were a, a different ethnicity, believe it or not, okay. and with a different language even. Okay. Uh, but the Han Chinese who spoke basically Mandarin Chinese, as we call it, they, they spread out over a period of hundreds or thousands of years. They gradually spread out and conquered and incorporated all these outlying regions which were occupied by ethnically different people. As we know, 56 ethnicities in China, Mm. they weren't always part of China. Fair enough. Okay. Now, the older generation and rural Chinese tend to value traditional culture and try to preserve and uphold it. On the other hand, Chinese youths and city dwellers tend to be more accepting and enthusiastic about progressive ideals. Mm. Um. Nevertheless, the country maintains a fundamental understanding of what it means to be Chinese, and one of these things is Confucianism. Mm. So Confucianism promotes the idea, and this is really important in understanding China, I think. I think so too. uh, The idea that relationships between people are unequal and that everyone should have defined hierarchical roles. For For example, ruler and subject, husband and wife, father and son. It teaches that when this natural inequality is accepted and respected, Mm. it becomes easier to maintain harmonious, stable relations between individuals and therefore in society as a whole. The Confucian logic of obedience, responsibility and adherence affects many aspects of Chinese behaviour and attitudes about virtue and their sense of duty and societal cohesiveness is encapsulated in the principle of Li, Social cohesiveness. And that extends all the way up to the emperor, by the way. Mm. Yeah. So rather than fighting for equality, there is an acceptance of unequal roles and a respect of what your role is and to perform that role in terms of... Like a dog pack, really. In terms of the social... In the interests of social cohesiveness. Mm. Mm. Now, that's completely... 
that's very different to um, modern Western, Western culture, mm. particularly, uh, you know, American mm. individual freedom is paramount sort of. Don't um, you know we are currently living so. in a patriarchal hell? <laughs> According <laughs> to Clementine episode. Ford or someone like that, episode. right? Is that what you're saying? So, 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 yes, dear listener, thinking about China, uh, bear in mind that sort of Confucianism um, sort of thing running through mm. their thought processes. There was also the idea of the mandate of heaven. Did, were you going no. to talk about no, that? No, you said <clears throat> Mandate of heaven was the idea that the, the gods or whatever supernatural powers there were uh, watch what's going on. And if the emperor or somebody in a position of authority falls out of favour with, with heaven or with the gods, something bad happens. Mm. And, they, and, and there, are, there are signs, like if there's a flood or a, okay. a natural disaster or a war, the, the people could interpret that as a sign that the emperor or whoever's in charge has lost the mandate of heaven. Okay. Yeah. Right. right. Okay. Also, uh, the social organisation of China is characterised by people's interdependence. Individuals are taught to keep to themselves and respect the law and authority to maintain societal harmony. The Chinese consider national unity and cooperation to be essential for society to function harmoniously. Mm. Uh, this is reflected in the most fundamental foundations of the culture. For example, all regions in China follow the same time zone, despite mm-hmm. the physical landmass spanning five geographical time zones. Uh, this provides for national sense of belonging and equality. Um, also, all behaviour and communication in China are influenced by the concept of face. Individuals usually act deliberately and with restraint to protect their self-worth and peer perception. Conservative conduct is the norm as people don't want to stand out and or risk losing face by doing something that is considered inappropriate. I like it. see that in Japan as well, that sort of face. Very much so. So, Not as forgiving. Well, not about forgiving. It's It's about about what is considered a proper. It's about avoiding doing things that will... Uh, Cause somebody to lose face. Bring yourself or your family into disrepute. Yes. So when our Prime Minister says, what the fuck went on in China? Let's send in weapons inspector-like people to root out what... Yeah, that's been beat up a little bit, I think. No, No, he said we need to be able to send people in without the consent of the country involved. I read the quote. Mm-hmm. So, but there you was know, no mention of he yeah, didn't say of fuck off destruction. But, no. But, no, but that's but essentially he said we need to be able to send people into China whether they like it or not to check out what's going in the wet markets if something happens. Mm. So, when we talk about the Chinese reaction to that, we've got to understand face. Yeah, like if you. Look, I yeah. take your point, Trevor. So, I don't think he said it repeatedly, though, did he? You only got to say it once. Why do you have to – he but said how, it once, he meant he lost, it once. How has he lost face by doing that? No, the Chinese do when mm. somebody says uh, – we, we can send oh, people Whether you like it or not, yes. Allied with a history of foreign intervention where they've had foreigners running around doing what they like for 100 years of embarrassment. Mm. You know, you've, yeah. you obviously do not it understand China. A very sensitive nerve. Exactly. Yeah. Mm. That's the point. So, um, but he didn't want to come across as a 
paper tiger either. He had to be forceful. He had to assert his authority. No, no, the point is he was well. never going to get that. Mm. China was never going to concede that, so don't mm. bother asking. Instead, to save face for the Chinese, you would say, look, what Beg. can we do together to cooperate so that in future when something happens, what do you, China, offer us? Like you don't just say And their response would have been, no, bugger off. It might have been. But, <laughs> so same but, result really. But, but no, different result because under the first option A, China mm. says, fuck you, now we're mm. going to look at your barley and your beef and whatever else we might think about because mm. you've now caused us to lose face. Yeah. So you, and under both, you're never going to get from them the forced entry into their country, why piss them off over things that you're never going to get? It was a very poorly judged <coughs> comment. Yeah, mm. it, was, it was stupid. Yeah. So, okay, um, another concept um, is no, G-U-A-N-X-I. G-U-A-N-X-I. Guanji. Guangxi or Guanji. something like that. Yep. I, I don't know. The principle of Guanji commits friends, family and at times business colleagues to assist one another. Violating Guangxi can lead to a loss of face or honour. Guangxi plays a large role in business inter, uh, interactions and relations. Mm. It refers to networking. Mm. Um, and the saying is insiders are different from outsiders. So this whole idea of um, networking together, you might do business with somebody because you're part of your network more so than because of a price or some other deal, like, you know, this sort of interconnected networking. So uh, that's part of it. And here's the interesting one is on politeness and courtesy. <coughs> so perceptions of politeness and courtesy in China differ from those in Australia. Traditional Chinese courtesy rests on the lifelong hierarchical relationships reflected in Confucian ideology. Those relationships are already clear, meaning the Chinese do not feel the need for constant verbal reinforcement through courtesy words like please, thank you, and excuse me. Okay, so the relationships that we talk about of husband, wife, master, servant, mm. the other ones we said which are unequal, they're there, they're known. You don't um, need to use courtesy words like please, thank you, and excuse me um, because people know their place in the hierarchy and saying those sorts of words creates a formality and distance that should not exist in their culture. Okay. Idea. Um, so when Scott Morrison talks to Xi Jinping, mm-hmm. he would not use words like please and thank you. Uh, or excuse me. Mm. Really? Indeed. But um, he's not one of his insiders. But he would be considered on the same level. Yeah. So, so if he used that, those if words, he said, can we please come into your country and that, conduct? Well, <laughs> if they're having if they're having a lunch together, and I'll get you an example where Scott Morrison and uh, Xi Jinping Xi. are having lunch together, right? Um, those sorts of courtesy words actually create distance, distance between people. So they act as a buffer or a space indicating formality and distance. So from a Western perspective, the contrast um, 
Seems confusing. For example, when at a restaurant amongst friends, a Chinese person will usually pour tea for everyone present at the table before pouring their own. Yeah. Right? Yet they may not say, excuse me, when asking for someone to pass them food. Or thank you if someone's poured them a cup of tea. In, indeed. So these That's are just... considered rude. Y- y- yeah, almost. because you've created distance. distance. You've inserted an unnecessary formality that uh, has created an iciness. That's interesting, isn't it? Hmm. So, um, so in that way, it could be perceived as rude from our point of view, but hmm. not from theirs. So um, respect and courtesy are exhibited in different ways. Religion? Are you going to get to religion? Well, that's Confucianism to some extent. It's not, exactly it's not religion. religion. It's, it's, religion. it's more um, an ethical system than yeah. religion. Uh, did but you want to talk about the Fulong? Fulong Gong. Yeah, did you or not? Because I wasn't going but to. Fulong Gong was a, a, a minor cult. There was. Yeah. The it real religion is, of the Chinese is ancestor worship. Yes, Wheat Watcher, the barley decision was likely made before COVID. <laughs> just allow me some poetic license for fuck's sake, okay? Just, okay? We did that last week, Wheat Watcher. We were, come on. Don't let the facts get in the way of Trevor trying to make just, a point. That's right. Wheat come Watcher. On. Just, all right. Yeah. Um, you want to? So we'll move on. Mm. Um, where was I? I was fascinated by the Falun Gong. Right. I, we'll go on. Yeah. Talk about it. Well, yep. okay. I've got yep. some notes here. Yep. So the Falun Gong is a new religious movement, and by new it, it officially started in 1992. That is new. Yeah. Uh, that combines meditation and Qingong exercises with a moral philosophy centred on the tenets of truthfulness, compassion, and forbearance. The Chinese Communist Party views Falun Gong as a potential threat due to its size independence from the state and spiritual teachings. In 1999, the CCP initiated a nationwide campaign with the intention of eradicating the practice. Here's the good bit. Um, The Falun Gong protests grew until April 1999 when over uh, 10,000 Falun Gong practitioners gathered near the central government compound in Beijing to request legal recognition and freedom from state interference. Mm. So the biggest religion wanted separation of it and the state, (laughs) which is the complete opposite of uh, Mm. religion or Christianity, at least in Western countries. They Mm. want to bring the state and religion as close together as possible. Mm. Um, So, yeah, so even to this day, um, the Chinese Communist Party are trying to shut down these Falun Gong practitioners. and well, Thousands uh, have been arrested. At least 2,000 have died as a result of abuse in custody. And there is a... So they see it as a threat to their, uh, to their rule. Yeah. And there are reports that the thousands of them were imprisoned mm. and a lot of them were really used badly. for organ, organ harvesting. Do- organ harvesting, yeah. I don't think they were donated somehow. Yeah, no. <laughs> A lot of uh, the... They donated without their consent. A lot of the Chinese asylum seekers are claiming asylum because of that religion. Mm. So they're saying, oops, I'm here and if I go back, I'll be persecuted. So Mm. that's one of their key reasons for seeking asylum here in Australia. Mm. It does sound like a bit of a kooky cult, I have to say. What's the difference between a cult and a religion, Paul? There is no difference. (laughs) But they... I don't know a lot about it, I have to admit, but... 
What little I have read, after I'd read it, I thought, hmm, probably not a group I'd join. They're pretty big. Yes. Well, they were. Yes, they were. Mm. But the, I mean, officially there is freedom of religion in China, but in reality the Chinese Communist Party just wants to control everything. Unless it threatens the CCP. Yeah. Do you know there there are reported to be more Christians in China than there are by far in Australia? There'd be more Christians in China. I think there's tens of millions of Christians in China. Yeah, but only a small percentage of the population. Of the total population, that's mm. true. But I've always wondered why Christianity would be popular to people with such a long and very deep, you know, cultural tradition of their own. Doesn't that... I wonder why Christianity perplexion? would appeal to anyone. Uh, well, I agree, but... <laughs> it would be Christianity with a very Chinese flavour, I would imagine. Yeah. I dare say. They'd work it in with existing Chinese. Mix a little Confucianism. Mm. Yeah, with exactly. It. Probably. Yep, definitely. Christianity is adapted, of course, as we know, yeah. the, by the, whatever culture indeed. adopts it. The brand that they would be selling in China would be quite different to the brand they're selling in Latin America. Like it's mm. for sure it would have been a, yeah. adapted and, yeah. So. Speaking of the Falun Gong practitioners seeking asylum, mm. um one of the things I learnt uh, during my research that after Tiananmen Square, Bob Hawke granted asylum to Chinese students mm. uh, immediately after. Mm. But apparently, ninety odd percent of them were actually supporters of the Chinese Communist Party. So, right. Yeah. Well, that's where we get to now. Is what is the support of? Mm. of the Communist Party. Dias- the, yeah, diaspora. And, yeah. Well, no, uh, within China within I want to talk about. Yep. So found this very interesting article by Guy Martin Jacques, who's an economist and author of a book called When China Rules the World, and he wrote an article for the BBC. And he compared in this article about how uh, at the time he was writing it, America was about to vote and elect Donald Trump. Meanwhile, the 18th Congress of the Chinese Communist Party would simply be selecting a new president and prime minister and saying that the contrast couldn't be greater. So Americans in their tens of millions turning out to vote. In China, the process of selection will take place behind closed doors and involve only a relative handful of people. And you are probably thinking, ah, America at its best, China at its worst. The absence of democracy. China's Achilles heel is in governance. This will be China's downfall. And this guy says, I want to argue quite the contrary. So he says that um, democracy uh, does not itself guarantee legitimacy. So think of Italy. It's always voting. But the enduring problem of Italian governance is that its state lacks legitimacy. Half the population don't really believe in it. So he says that the Chinese state enjoys greater legitimacy than any Western state. How come? Um, Among the people, you mean? (coughs) Indeed. Mm. In the course of, uh, in the case of China, the source of the legitimacy lies um, outside the history or experience of Western societies. So he talks about, it gets back to this Confucianism issue. Are you pointing at your watch? Oh, I, I just glanced at it. Sorry. <laughs> just getting warmed up. Yeah. 
We might divide this into two parts. Passes quickly, doesn't it? Now, this is an important part because you're always talking about bloody Chinese and their lack of democracy and totalitarian state. Indeed. So this is important. We're getting to the crux of the podcast. Pay attention is what I'm asking. (laughs) So, um, So legitimacy of the Chinese government from... And get back to the Confucianism and your role in society and societal harmony. And basically the role of the government is to ensure Chinese civilization and harmony as an an ultimate goal in the minds of a Chinese person so that if the society is harmonious, if it is successful, if Chinese civilization is prospering, then... That's what matters to the Chinese. Mm. And whether they got to vote for that or not, yeah, it's not it's certainly not so. And we should remember they never have. No. They've so, never had a tradition of voting for their, for their governments. Yeah. So um, they don't know what they're missing out on. Like that. Well, even the ones who do, like, again, I've had Chinese homestay boys here who've watched me head off to elections and come back mm. on a Saturday morning and we talk about the election process and I say, so what do you think? You know, does it annoy you that in China you don't get to do that? And they go, no, couldn't mm. care. Like, it honestly did not worry them. And they had been here for several years mm. of an age where you're becoming politically aware mm. and they really thought, yeah. Like, provided the Chinese economy is ticking over and is successful and the Chinese civilization is running, mm. that is what is important to Chinese and they're prepared to they don't even give up. They don't those care young people about. have been indoctrinated, though. Well, do you know well. what comes well, but, to my mind but, but, is the but Romans. The, count, the counter-argument to that induction, indoctrination, because what I'm trying to say is you've got to look at it with their culture and their history and mm. their way of viewing the world. But also and, the indoctrination just, well, that's going on. But it's just a different way and it's not necessarily wrong. No, because that's the way it's always been. Basically, you, is you've had. You're not a fan of indoctrination, though. I'm, I'm not, but I'm a fan of understanding empathetically yeah. how mm. other people view things. Oh, okay. Yes. Yep. And and they could, I mean, these kids have had inter- access to the internet and the news for you know they're with us for two years in Australia you've heard watching of the, the Great Firewall of China, though, haven't you? Yeah, but they've been living in Australia for oh, two okay, years. Yeah. Like they've seen it operating. Mm-hmm. They're quite mm. worldly aware in that sense. But have you they could taken say the same but, thing but, but, of children that so, have been indoctrinated but, into Christianity. I mean, they've got access to the internet as that's well. Right. <laughs> yes. you, you could, but the whole point of this podcast so far is to say, look at what shapes countries mm-hmm. and shapes people. And yep. I'm just simply saying that when you've got a culture that is shaped by Confucianism and a recognition and acceptance of unequal yes. roles, mm. then... For that person, it's not that important to vote, provided the society is harmonious and prospering. That's right. And the Communist Party effectively acts in the same role as the old imperial bureaucracy. Mm. They make sure that the the machines of society work, yep. and that's their job. That's yep. their role. Yep. So I've got here... Um, in this article, it says in a series of surveys uh, by Tony Satch at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government, he found that between 80 and 95% of Chinese people were Ill, either relatively or extremely satisfied with central government. And Pew Global Attitudes Surveys 2010 found that 91% of Chinese respondents thought that the government's handling of the economy was good, 
Meanwhile, the UK figure was 45%. So they're happy with mm. how the government's managing the economy and that's well, and if the society is harmonious and working. Though, yeah. So, um, of course, it doesn't mean that they're conflict-free. Of course, there are groups who are going to not be happy and there are strikes and there are, you know, agitations within. But essentially, you've got to view it from that point of view where they have a different priority system based on their culture. And that, is it, that priority system... Is it that different? Even though we have elections here, mm. people are basically not that fussed who is in government in Australia so long as everything happens properly. Week yeah, watcher, a good point. watcher in the chat room says there are plenty of young people in democracies which couldn't care less about voting. Absolutely. Mm. Uh, it's true. Yeah, so, yeah, um, that's a good point. Uh, so there we go. Um, uh, let me just see here. Goes on. But I think the fact that the they have successfully raised the standard of living for the vast majority of Chinese people and very significantly raised their standard of living, yeah. people are like, well, it the system works. And there wouldn't be a country in the world that has raised the standard of living more in the last... As dramatically and yeah. rapidly, yeah, probably mm. in such large numbers. Mm. Yeah. And what this article was written a while ago, but it's saying that we're seeing that in terms of the success of the Chinese economy... Having central control actually really helps you to manage an economy at a macro level. So not good in some ways, but excellent Decisions in others. Decisions get made quickly. Exactly. And um, you get on with it. Exactly. And we saw with this coronavirus, a central, strong, authoritarian government can do things. Has its advantages. Indeed. Yeah. <laughs> and increasingly, we're going to see uh, countries around the world, Australia included, acknowledging you know all that talk about small government? Um, that actually didn't work real well for us. We've discovered we need some big government in certain areas now. And it's a world where um, a strong central government might actually be very, very effective in getting things done. So uh, increasingly to be taken into account as we look at how we manage societies. It's an interesting thought. Mm. Mm. Right. That's culture. Any other thoughts on culture before I move on? Because I'm conscious that it's an hour and 29 and Paul was looking at his watch earlier. And, and we like, still have to decide, is China a communist country or not? <laughs> Cam Riley, are you still in the chat room? Because I'm getting, I'm, getting, um, I'm getting people looking at the clock here saying I'm going too slow. Like, uh, so come on. Um, okay, let's look at China's economy. Um, Let's look at that. Let me just see. Um, okay. As of 2019, 100 million Chinese are in the top 10% of wealthiest individuals in the world. So that's people who have a net personal wealth of 110,000. So they've got more than America in terms of people in the top 10%. They've got... Um, they've got... The most number of billionaires and they're second in terms of millionaires. But that 100 million, that's not 100 million uh, of millionaires. It's, no. it's a sort of middle class, isn't it? It's a sort of... There, there are 3. 100 million in the top 10 There are 3.5 million millionaires in, in China. Yeah, 3.5 million, not 100 million. Uh, 
No, there's a hundred million. No, people, people who own uh, there's a hundred million Chinese are in the top top ten percent. Top ten percent of the wealthiest individuals in the world. So in the when, world, well, yeah. if you line up the poorest person in the world and the, and the most the ex- and the most wealthy person in the world, if you've got one hundred and ten thousand, you're in the top ten percent. Yeah. So China has a hundred million people in that top ten yeah. percent. It's got six hundred and fifty eight billionaires. And 3.5 million millionaires. Mm. Um, but in terms of per capita economic output, it's uh, 70 in terms of 180 countries. So it's 70. a middle, it's about a middle income. There's a great disparity mm. developing between these super rich uh, Asian princelings and your average. And the United Chinese. Nations still considers it as a developing country, right? Um, Oh, I, think it, it, I think it has some sort of concessions. The world, well, the world, okay, my understanding of that is that it was classified as a developing nation under the World Trade Organisation. World Trade Organisation, not but the UN, sorry. it did not take advantage of the special benefits available to a developing nation. Right. So, sure? yes, that is my reading of it. So they mm. qualified but said we don't take those particular advantages. So in terms of extra trade benefits mm. that you're allowed as a developing nation, they didn't take them. So there you go. I thought I came Fact across a news article on... recently yes. where there was some other country. Do you know what? Fact check me next week. But, Maybe. But yeah. that's my Maybe reading. Deal, isn't Haven't it? you heard something about some Google country that. saying, well, you know, we have to stop treating China as a developing country. Donald Trump said that, and I read Scott an article. Mar- Scott Scotty from Marketing. Uh, yeah, one of them. That. It was either Trump or Morrison, same thing, said, <laughs> said exactly that, and the article I read said, yes, they're nominally a developing country, but they have not actually taken advantage of the extra mm. concessions available. So it's bullshit. And essentially that was the article I read, was in response to that statement. So if we took that privilege away from them, it wouldn't make any difference. Exactly right. Mm. Yeah, but they actually talk to other developing nations and get form voting blocks with them when they want to get things mm. more numbers on there. So okay, um, so that's sort of economy, um, military. We're so scared that the Chinese are going to invade us. Not in not next year, but. Yeah. So should we be scared? And let's look at their history, for starters, as we said earlier, they've been quite an inward-looking nation for a long time. Like they weren't really interested in the rest of the world. As a, as a matter of disposition, they were like, we're not really keen to get involved in the outside world. So. Mm. It's, it's not inherent in their DNA that they are like, – they're not like the Mongols, like mm. who just – like or they're or not the like – the Japanese. They don't have – you know, or Alexander the Great is not, um, you know, coursing through their veins, veins in the sense that of expansionary long-term tendency. So, granted – They're not like be, the British. They might have a new development and a new love for expansionism, but just looking historically, mm. you would say not the most expansionist well, group. I would add something to that. Oh, yeah. Historically, mm-hmm. the Chinese considered that China was the apex of human civilization. They didn't really know much about Europe and other other civilizations, but at the time when it was still just China and their neighbors, China was the top 
And all the neighbouring states were considered vassal states. Now, you know this expression, vassal state. It's like somebody... Pays a tribute. It pays a tribute every year, you know. Mm -hmm. So I think that they have, in, in a sense, carried on that tradition where they say, we are big China, Vietnam, Laos, you know, Burma, Korea. You are our vassal states. And they still treat them like vassals. Mm. They do do they? Oh, absolutely. And they're moving how? towards how? Australia, how? becoming one of those. How, how do they treat states? how do they treat them as they insist states? that none of those neighboring states get too uppity in their relationships with China. That's how. A vassal state demands tribute. Have they demanded tribute? Well, in, in some way they will be exacting mean, some form of tribute, I'm they, sure. What do you mean? They, what have in, they, said, in terms what have they of said to Indonesia? Favourable trade relations. What did they say to Indonesia about you're getting too uppity? Stop that. When did they, what did they Possibly not, they haven't perhaps insisted on what, Indonesia, but they've what, certainly what, um, you, brought pe- pressure to bear on what, the other smaller what, states. Is what they've China. done in recent weeks with Australia, is that, is that, is that what you're talking about? Australia is getting uppity? I think in a lot of ways you could put Australia in that relationship. We supply them with raw materials for industry. We supply them with food, fibre, whatever else, even holiday destinations. But we are absolutely never considered to be on the same level as them. Do we consider them to be on our level? I think in... When we say to them, look, we'll send yeah, in Don't go back to that. But, don't go back to that. We're sending in the things. You, you can't harp on about that all the time, Trevor. But it's in response to that that they no, did, no, they no, did no, what no, they no. did. We've had a relationship with China for decades now. It didn't yeah. start with Scott Morrison saying we're going to send in weapons inspector type... Xi Jinping and, and most of the leaders have come to Australia in the days of, of Howard... And and Abbott mm-hmm. and um, Rudd and Gillard, that the Chinese leadership were here every year. Yes, all and the how time. Did the Australian and, prime minister and, and, uh, politicians treat them with the utmost respect and deference. Yeah, and now when they treat them like shit, they say, "Well, if that's what you're going to do, here's what we're going to do." They didn't all treat China like shit. That was one incident where Morrison. Obviously, made a very poor choice of okay before words. we before we, but yes, China does very much look at Australia as a vassal state. I would say in a lot of respects. Well, if that's your definition of a vassal state, it's that, that's just that's we don't pay we'll them agree. tribute. Well, well, then that's not a vassal. But state. they treat us as not on the same level. Well, Trevor. then, in re- because. Australia has not treated them on the same level. Oh, I don't think that's true at all. Australia I've just given has, you the classic example. That's one incident. Look, Australian politicians have been bending over backwards to try and to sell cu- stuff to cultivate good relations with the Chinese. Yeah, the Chinese stuff. have reciprocated when it was in their interests, yeah. but when it isn't in their interests, they do what they did a couple guess, of weeks. Guess what? Ago. When it's not in Australia's interests, guess what we do? We do what's in our interests. Yes, but we don't insult them. We and did. That's the whole point of this no, no, whole goddamn that, podcast is to say how we insulted them. That was one incident. One I, incident. Look, I'm talking about years and decades of relationships. And you can see when our politicians and and business leaders meet the Chinese, it's, 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 they it's, act with extreme But deference. it's more than that because Australia, for example, with uh, with the... Um, the dumping 
Australia said, you're dumping, mm-hmm. right? So when you say there's only one incident, I, with, I can quickly find you the whole dumping thing where Asia said, where China says, no, 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 you haven't treated us fairly on that. So they would say, no, you didn't treat us fairly in that regard. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if I could have five minutes to think to myself, you could list a number of times where they could say, well, really, um, we were conducting our military operations off our coast and you guys bitched and moaned about it. Mm-hmm. And all we were doing is defending our territory. So, Who was that? When we talk about uh, actions in the South China Sea. South China Sea is not their territory. No, but this, the point is from their point of view, they can say you've insulted us. So when you say there's only one time that we've insulted them, you could easily come up with others which, from their point of view, are an insult. Yeah, from their point of view. But my point is that if you look at the pattern of political interaction and relationships, not just Australia, but the leaders of Western countries since about 1980 or since they started uh, transforming to a market economy, Western leaders have been bending over backwards to cultivate good relations with the Chinese. Here's what we can do. For every time you reckon China shafted us, I'll find two times that the US has shafted us, yet you don't complain. Anyway, let me just finish off. There might be some parallels with our relationship with the US. I agree with you on that. Let me just finish off with military. We're shit scared that China's just going to come down and invade us. And we think we have to cosy up to America in order to save ourselves because they're too big, we're too small, we couldn't possibly defend ourselves. Mm -hmm. I'd say a lot of Australians are scared about that and it comes. it's born out of ignorance. Indeed. I'm not scared but after that podcast that you did. With Han too, my mate. Yes. Yes. I was even less scared after that. Yeah. That was was a great episode. Yeah. You want to look that up, dear listener? Have a listen to that one. on the website, Han too, H-A-N-T. If you're a little bit scared about China invading, have a listen to that episode and you won't be. Yeah. And I've got a link to an article from Hugh White in The Monthly. So Hugh White Mm -hmm. wrote a book. um, So he's a professor of strategic studies at the Strategic and Defence Studies Centre Australian National University, and the author of the book, How to Defend Australia. Now, I disagree with his ideas about nuclear deterrent, but on other things, I think he's, I think he's spot on. Yeah, he's and, pretty sharp. And basically what he is saying is that there's a difference between uh, sea control and sea denial. So sea control is where you can sail your ships around an area of sea and be quite confident they're not going to be blown up. Mm-hmm. That's sea control. That's sea control. Sea denial is where you can deny somebody that ability, mm. where you can um, you can look at an area of water and say, we can stop anybody who wants to come across that area of water if we want or to. Or threaten if you come into that area. We'll blow you up. We'll blow you up. Which is yeah. what the Chinese are doing in the South China Sea. Exactly. It's a defensive thing. So from uh, basically Hugh White is saying that, uh, because of modern technology, with the ability to launch missiles and with submarines, it's 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 really so much easier to conduct sea denial than it is to conduct sea control. Mm. Meaning, it's much less expensive and much more effective, and 
and the technology has moved mm. that way and is increasingly moving that way Absolutely. where mm. with anti-ship um, sort of missiles and whatnot. Which either fly a long way. Either land-based or from aircraft or from submarines, mm. um, you, you know, one missile knocks off uh, an aircraft carrier mm-hmm. and Potential. it's incredibly tough to control an area of sea comparatively easy to deny an area of sea. And so Australia can, if we're willing to spend enough money mm. on a decent submarine fleet and a decent aircraft group, uh, we can punch the nose of China. If it, China today could not attack Australia, mm. could not do it. We not could, today. Even with our meagre defences at the moment, we could stop them. Mm. And as China spends trillions On our own, of, without yes, the help of yes, the US. And yeah. as as China spends trillions of dollars gaining increasing naval power, we only need to spend billions of dollars mm. because we're only doing sea denial. Denial, yeah. So those fancy French submarines. Yeah, well, our problem is the submarines that we're buying are the wrong ones, Absolutely. too expensive. So he's basically saying we need more submarines, more aircraft, but essentially a country like Australia can defend itself. We do not need the United States we can't rely on them anyway. Mm. So don't be so shit scared of mm. China because we've just mentioned earlier on how many neighbours have they got to deal with? Their focus mm. is in their defence of in that South China Sea. They don't want them. They're building up a capacity so that America can't come across and invade them. Mm. And America can't now. Like they, they couldn't do it. So... Mm. That's been their focus and it's an understandable one given their history and from our point of view, if we spend what is uh, an amount of money that's not out of the ballpark, we can we can easily defend this country. China are decreasing without, the amount uh, that they spend on military as well in recent Decreasing? Decreasing. You mean as a percentage? It's a percentage yeah, of their of GDP. GDP yeah. Right. But it's still quite a lot, isn't it, that they're spending? It's only like 6% or something. I don't think it's as They're building ships at a rapid rate. They're acquiring aircraft. They're, they're, their army is only about, is it 2 million, something like that, got which the is big, still quite a lot, but... The, in a population of, you know, 1.3 something billion. Their army is bigger than any other army in terms about, of manpower. I think it's about 2 million, but I'm not sure. Mm. Mm. So, okay. So that's um, one other thing, just Belt and Road. Mm. It's really hard to get an idea of what is this Belt and Road, but it mm. seems to be where China is saying to other countries, we'll help you build a bigger port, a bigger piece of infrastructure. We'll lend you money. Mm. And We've been critical of them in the past on the podcast because it seems with some poorer countries, they've said, here's a big bunch of money and the poorer country can't repay it and under that it gets forfeited mm. and the Chinese end up owning the port. Mm. Like they do in Sri Lanka now? Yeah. yeah. So it looks like Daniel Andrews, Andrews in Victoria has signed some sort of non-binding agreement under the Belt and Road Scheme with China. So from what I've read, he's not actually committed to anything except to say... I like the idea of Belt and Road. Mm. Now, if all it is is China lending money for infrastructure, then uh, just don't borrow more than you can handle and you'll be fine. Like Chinese invest in things My all the time. My concern there is that I can't remember which body it is, but they've asked 
uh, Daniel Andrews to hand over the details of the agreement that he signed. <laughs> right. And a lot of it was blacked out and he said, you don't need to know the details. <laughs> good, good on him. As he would. Good on him. <laughs> well, so pe- he's people are pointing keeping out that secrets. The the federal government is not of that deals he's done with um, with with China. Yeah, the, even the federal government. Is well, it sold the port of Darwin them. to China. I know they did. The so full. they can hardly complain. For, well, it's a ninety nine year lease. Yeah. Well, sounds in, like Hong Kong. In, in any event, they can hardly complain. When Daniel Andrews says, oh, I'm going to do an infrastructure deal with China, and they go, oh, you can't do that. Wait a minute. You just sold the port of Darwin still, to them. I think they have reason to complain to say, well, if you've signed a deal, let's see it. Well, he I says. I mean, if, if the federal government sold a port in Darwin to the Chinese, mm-hmm. there would, there'd be well, we sort can. of non-disclosure well, and we, all the deal that they signed, information mm-hmm. would be ready available to everyone. I'd imagine under that. Look, uh, after it all happened, Daniel Andrews will say to it, I'll tell you what I've done and I've done it. So, There's something I read about these. Well, he signed the agreement. He should. Yeah, yeah but the agreement is a non-legally uh, binding agreement that allows Victorian infrastructure experts to get access to the hundreds of billions of dollars of projects slated for Belt and Road. Like, he actually hasn't committed to anything. It's just a memorandum of understanding. A memorandum yeah. of understanding. I, I read just mm. in the last couple of days something about investment, infrastructure investment in the South Pacific region. Australia is far and away the biggest donor of aid money to the South Pacific countries, far and away the biggest. Above China. Above China, way above China. Well, then... But we don't. We, our aid budget is, but, is is a fraction of what it was. The point was made. Yeah, our our aid. We budget, made a sixty billion savings through the week. Yeah, our, yeah, aid, yeah. our aid budget has gone down over the last number of Since years. Since Julie Bishop, but it's still far far more than China. Um, mm. The the point that was made in the article I read was Australia gives aid for things like schools and hospitals and stuff that are sort of blended into the landscape. Mm. China gives. Big lumps of money to build something like a new parliament building mm. in somewhere like Samoa or somewhere I like that. It was more like dams or railroads or well, it's or infrastructure. big flashy infrastructure projects with you know with, that provide water and electricity, where, and stuff which like stand that. out. In other words, people look at it and go, "Oh, where did that come from?" Yep. Oh, China so, gave us some money for yep, that. Yep. Whereas the Australian government and the New Zealand government, I more should subtle. mention are giving money all over the place, but people don't notice it as much, you know, because it's right. in things that just blend into the landscape. Mm. Mm. That's interesting. Mm. Mm. Right. Predictions for China for the future. Anybody got any predictions? Don't we have to decide is it a communist state or not? We I've already decided. That. We've decided. Have we? You're outvoted there, yeah. mate. No, I haven't decided because I was thinking about this and it occurred to me that the, you know, as we discussed, if you want to... Even though there are private companies in China, mm. some of them quite big ones, mm. they are still under the thumb of the Communist Party. So, in a sense, the I mean, the, the you know, all land in China is basically state owned. Okay, so you were talking about ownership of the means of production by the people. It still exists. It's still real. And even if you buy a property, even though uh, you know. Ownership of land and apartments and things like that 
has loosened up and has become better in China in recent years, but you still, still ultimately, you don't own it. It's, it's like a lease. Can it's I give like some a- more statistics? Yeah. In 2018... Sorry, can I just finish my point? Well, because it's about communists and why I think mm, it is a communist. Yeah, but party. you've given a statement about ownership and it's wrong. I haven't finished my point. Okay. My point is that I think the Communist Party have basically decided that if the old system of uh, central control of the economy wasn't really moving fast enough or getting the results they wanted, they thought, okay, we'll do it a different way. We'll pretend that people privately own their, their own companies, of course they ultimately, if we want to take it back, because the law is basically Communist Party law, it's not, an, not a separate legal mm. system like we have here, they can change the law whenever they want. They can requisition or take possession of whatever mm. they want, whenever they want, basically. So even though there's this veneer of a capitalist economy, and it is a a sort of a capitalist economy, Mm. ultimately the Communist Party and the Chinese state still owns everything. So my reckoning is, yes, it is definitely still a communist system. They've just decided to do it a little bit differently. They don't own everything. Private enterprise has expanded enormously with around 30 million private businesses recorded in 2008. In 2018, private enterprises in China accounted for 60% of GDP, Mm -hmm. 80% of urban employment and 90% of new jobs. Mm -hmm. You might say, oh, the Communist Party can just take all that away. They can. But they can't because it's bigger than the party and powerful people will throw them out. They, they don't want this. The, the, the powerful people in the party own this shit. So they don't want the party suddenly taking this stuff away from individuals because they might be one of the victims. So yes, but it's, it's not, not going to happen. It's not in their interest to say, oh, you know what? Let's just suddenly start taking private stuff away from people under an authoritarian rule because they might they own enough personal stuff now that they're at risk of having that taken off them. Yes, so that's but it not, doesn't they have to happen, do it. You might say... It doesn't they, have to happen. You might say, oh, they can just take it off them. But when you've got powerful people donating money, massaging mm-hmm. relationships, networking, system. you can't just say... Um, Xi Jinping cannot simply say, I'm not happy with the owner of Alibaba, I'm taking that business. He can't. Really? No. You should check out what no, happened no, at Alibaba no, 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 because about a year ago. You, you should understand how power works when you've got you're, – you're suggesting that the 658 billionaires mm-hmm. in China have no power. And I wouldn't money, say they have no power. No, you're saying they don't have enough power to stop the Communist Party. If the, the answer, Communist Party decides, and the answer, and the answer on the is the people it, making the decision in the Communist Party are part of that 658 mm-hmm. billionaires, mm-hmm. and they're not about to start uh, pushing a rock down a hill where suddenly the party can take start uh, um, confiscating private assets because they're in the firing line. Okay, they're not going to do it very often, Trevor, because they don't need to. It's like everybody knows the way 
things work. So they know if they push too hard in the wrong direction, they're going to be in trouble. So, they, you know, it's just that threat hanging mm. over them all the time. They don't need to, you so, know, so take you're, over a you're, company you're very You're basically often. saying any um, authoritarian state is mm. communist. No, I'm not. Well, because any authoritarian state mm. could steal private property, yeah. therefore it is communist. Yeah, but what my point so is... So you, you are saying that. No, my point. point is that they still ultimately, the Chinese state ultimately still owns the means of production. No, it's... They've just it's, rented it's it strong, out. It's strong in energy production and heavy yeah. industries, but private enterprise owns everything else. Yeah, they call it so, private so, enterprise, so you're but really, ultimately it's yeah. all owned but, but by the But you're just Chinese saying state. any authoritarian state, any dictatorship mm. is communist. No, I'm not. Because you're saying at any point it can take the means of production off private individuals. No, 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 no. Because that's what you're saying is what makes China communist. No, I'm not. I'm saying it started communist and it's still communist because they've just basically uh, massaged the way that they own and control everything. In other words, they don't do it directly like in the old Marxist-Leninist model, but they still ultimately still own it because... I don't I, think you're going to make any headway there. Well, there's two I'm, parts I'm, to the know, definition Alibaba, of communism, by the way. Alibaba. Okay. I know communism is about the the whole country <laughs> owning the means of production. No, no. There's Alibaba. another part to it. There's another part yeah, to communism. But definitely. something happened with Alibaba a couple of years ago, didn't it? I'm sure there was something. I read something and I don't remember the details. Well, come back to it. But that guy, yeah. Ma, who owns the company, mm-hmm. He was uh, on the losing end of something that happened in the last year or two. Bit of a figurehead now, is he? But the the two parts to the communism definition is uh, a theory or system of social organisation which all property is owned by the community. And Mm -hmm. the second part to the definition is and each person contributes and receives according to their ability and their needs. Now, I don't think... Everyone in China contributes according to their ability and their needs. Yeah, but that never happens in, in look, any look, society. Honestly, Paul, if you took Marx in a time machine yeah. and plopped him in China <laughs> and said, the nope. 12th man reckons this is communism, <laughs> tell, tell, me, tell me he wouldn't burst out laughing. Tell me. He'd be very surprised, but let's face it, Marx died in the 19th century. He'd be surprised by a whole lot of things. Tell me how this works. He'd say uh, private enterprise, 60% of GDP, uh, 80% of urban employment, 90% of new jobs. The fact uh, that it's so successful. 30 million private businesses. Tells me that it's not communism. Don't know that this is. He would say it's on the road. You know what he'd say? What would he say? He'd say this is actually on the road to communism because Marx. Socialism recognized, is on the road to communism. No, Marx recognised that peasant economies could not move That's directly right. to communism. Yes. His theory was that they had to become industrialised and private enterprise and some sort of... Um, In other know, words, they almost, go through a phase of but, capitalism. They had to become industrialised through a phase of capitalism mm. and then having achieved... Um, and state of industrialization, they could then go back to uh, move to a situation of socialism and communism. Magic. So, Marx. No, I think, hang on, I've got it here. In Marxist theory, socialism mm. is a transitional social state 
between the overthrow of capitalism and the realization mm-hmm. of communism. Yeah, so but if you're, you're forgetting- in a capital state and you want to move towards communism, yep. you've got to go through a transitional phase called But you've got to remember he was looking at peasant societies and said the peasant society had to move to an industrial capitalist society and then back to socialism mm-hmm. and then communism. So there was a step from peasantry that had to go to an industrial society. In his mind, you could not go from peasant to communism. You had to go via industrial capitalism. So, just Marx the fact would, that Chinese economy is so successful well, tells me that it's not communism. Well, Marx, like, that's Marx, the hallmark of communism, isn't so, it? People, people starve. So, <laughs> so, Marx would look at it and he would go, um, "Now, wrong. Told you so. You don't go from peasant to communism. Ah, modern China, it's on track." This is what you have to do, and then you'll be able to head towards communism. That's I, what Marx would yeah, say. But, but he, would suspect, not say, he wouldn't look at it now and go, oh, you've achieved it, Conrad. I suspect mm. Marx would get a shock if he visited any so-called Marx might communist think, country. Well, once you've taken over the world do, and you've do, got world do, domination, do, then you do, can implement communism. You know communism. what Marx, though, would look at today's capitalist society and, and the neoliberal experiment and the ruination that's happening in America and elsewhere with – you know, um, ruination. Yes, with drugs like simple drugs like what do you use for diabetes? Insulin. Mm. You know, unaffordable in America. This sort of thing. Marx understood how power worked and how capitalists would screw people. He understood it before mm-hmm. anybody. Now you might criticise his utopian view of what a, a eventual communist society would be, but he understood how power worked and how. Um, America, in a sense, he would look at America today and go, fucking told you so. And what about Australia? If he visited Australia, what would he say? What a mess. Look what the neoliberals have done to you people. So so he he would say, um, well done, comrades, you're on the road to communism because you've now industrialised, you can actually, that's what he would say. Okay. There you go, Delisner. Have we made it to two hours? Two hours already. Fifty-four oh my seconds. Goodness. The future. Let's look forward. Oh yeah. Okay. Oh, well, you wanted this. You put this down in the notes. You, yeah. yeah. Um, wouldn't you like to be able to crystal ball that? Mm. There's, well, there's definitely cause for concern. Um, in China, it's concern for what? For who? For what? For well, why? For, for Australia. About. I think. Become um, a vassal state, right? <laughs> a tribute state, yeah, right. Um, I mean, they they are a rising superpower. Mm. Economically, they're going to be bigger than the United States, and in some regards, they already are. Mm. I think future wars will be fought economically, not with military. So it won't matter how big the US's army is, or you know how small the Chinese army is. They'll they'll find other means of dominating their power in you know Western civilizations. Um, we know that they're not a fan of democracy, free speech, human rights, or justice, and all of those things the United States actually stands for. Oh. So. Next week. Okay. <laughs> um, you know, oh, please. For, for oh, all it's, it was. I've got so much work to do on you. Was, for, like, for all of its please. faults. For so, all of its please. faults. You know, oh, have you looked at the gerrymandering? It might be, you, it might be a, um, 
It might but be better to do again. Say those again. Democracy, free yeah. speech, yeah. human rights, yeah. and justice. Put it in justice and twist it. Justice. It's, I'm not yeah. saying any of those things are perfect. Human right? rights. Yeah. I'm not saying yeah. any do of those. You, do you things seriously are think that yeah. all yeah. those things are better in China than in the United yeah. States, yeah. Trevor? We've, we've gone two hours. You, you say what it stands for. Why did you pick the US? Couldn't you have picked? Any nut? No, no you well, could we're have talking about Australia. A, we're talking about a rising you superpower. Could, you could have picked Australia for those things to a large extent. I just okay. We're talking about the battle between America and, good and China and to be the the world superpower, right? Not necessarily good and evil, but it's a different ideological um, mm. viewpoint. Mm. Mm. Um, and I, I don't think there's any question that the American society and culture is for democracy a lot more than China is. I mean, there's no real argument there. They're, they're much for free, much bearing in mind for though, free speech. Bearing in mind what we've said about Chinese culture and its recognition of unequal hierarchical relationships and the desire for harmonious, mm. prosperous economy and civilization above personal yeah, but that's not our culture, is it? I know. We don't have a shared culture. We wouldn't I, I, have a shared culture I, with the I, I dominant that, but when world superpower, but, which is not a good position but, to be but, in. But when you're saying, um, okay, so you're saying it from the point of view of which system, because you're right, you couldn't impose that system on us. We wouldn't accept it no. in the same way that our system imposed on them may not Because work. of our different cultures. Yes. And so, we're not so saying, we're cu- I'm not saying that ours so is better or worse. I'm just saying So it's culturally different. we're closer to the USA than yeah. China. I'll agree with you there. Yeah. Yes. We'd find it more uncomfortable to be dominated by China than mm. America. Mm. I'll, I mean, I'll the, give you that. I think the only thing... <laughs> Really, that a concession from with, Trevor. Did you just did you hear that? Just, have you have you ever got one of those? I'm not sure. <laughs> well done, was it? Um, maybe I would make an all right diplomat. Um, <laughs> justice? Do you, do you think? Do you do you have more faith in the American justice system than you do in the? They're both Chinese? unjust. Oh, I mean, come unjust. On, true. But we're talking really? levels here. I mean, we're, we've we're already not had a black, discussion, not a weeks. black and white discussion we, we where a, one's good and one's bad. We're we're trying to choose the lesser of two evils here. Yeah. Um, where would you rather stand trial in America or in China? Am I black in Alabama on a rape trial? Not talking about race. We're just talking about you're you're in trouble with the government. Am, am I a Uyghur in China? Good point. Am I black in Alabama? Am I a wealthy uh, tech guy in San Francisco or am I a princeling in China? Did the Uyghurs get a trial? My point is, depends who you are. Did the Uyghurs even get a trial? No. Do you not understand the injustices that occur in America? We like, know if, the injustices you, in America. So, so what I'm saying is but there are injustices system. in both. It depends on your position in society in each case. So I would rather be a princeling in China or uh, than a black man in Alabama on a rape trial. So That's depending, a really strange comparison. De, de, well, well, you asked, a princeling. You asked about um, 
A princely what, what, is yeah. a very my, but my, highly privileged but, member of the Chinese but, elite. Without but going my, into identity, here's my if point. You were the, if you were an average American or an average Chinese. Yes, that's mm. a better comparison. Right, yeah. right. Without And you got into right. trouble with the government. Right. right. Where would you rather... What am I in trouble over? Where would you rather take on the government in, what, a, in a law court? What am I in, in tr- China or in America? What, what, what am I in trouble over? Oh, I don't know, just some... You know, dispute over land title, or you know, maybe the government wanted to develop okay, your I, I would, your land, and they told okay, you to get lost. Okay, I'd rather be in America. Absolutely. Okay, now if I was um, uh, had a compromised immune system, and I lived in a busy metropolis city, uh, and I was fearful that if I got coronavirus, uh, I would die. Mm-hmm. Would I rather be in uh, China or would I rather be in New York? Yeah. As a poor black, as a poor person in New York, yeah. Um, a worker uh, cleaning the subway, mm-hmm. or a poor person in Wuhan uh, as a worker cleaning the subway. Which one would I rather be, hoping to live longer? I'd rather be in Wuhan. Possibly. So simply just, because you know, we know the can, American medical system is so stuffed. Yeah, so, you but know, we I mean, don't know. I mean, we're going to talk about so, COVID nineteen so, next week. So, I hope, but so, I mean, we don't we don't have any confidence of the numbers coming out. We don't know how about that. We next don't know week. how bad COVID nineteen is <laughs> in China. I actually, don't think Craig, any country, Craig contacted me, yeah. and he's going to hopefully come on next oh, week. Good. Oh, good. Yes, good. and we're going to talk about your your flu theories. Yeah. The Kung Please, flu. let's not do that now. But okay. I'm just making the point. It depends on your situation. Mm-hmm. So it, mm. at times, so look. Obviously, there are enormous problems in free China, speech, but you've got to um, doesn't exist in China. Yeah. So um, free speech, you'd rather be in America. Absolutely. Mm. So, and um, it is important, isn't it? Free speech. You agree with that proposition? Yeah, but um, you know. There are also poor people in America working for seven dollars fifty an hour mm. on two jobs, mm-hmm. and their partner has to do the same. Mm. And if they've got kids, then one does a night shift, the other does a day shift, and they might see each other on a Sunday mm. afternoon. Would you and, rather be the poorest and, of the and poor so, in China so or the I'm, poorest of the poor so, in the United so States? In, in terms of Living conditions, I've seen some terrible living conditions in America. Okay. Would you but, rather be the poorest of the poor Chinese or the poorest of the poor American? Um, I'd rather be the poorest of the... It, I, the, it, the lowest I, ranking. <laughs> they're both so terrible. One is sleeping under a bridge in a snowy... Michigan winter, and another mm. one is slaving away in a paddy field. Like, how do you mm. compare them? Like, I like, think you have better social mobility in America than what you would in China. I know. Okay, oh. so um, social mobility in America is terrible. It's one of the great myths of the world. Is I'm not saying it's good, but I think it's still better than. Do you China. know, if you had a really bright kid in China, you'd be guaranteed he could get to a good education, maybe more so than America. Do you think? Mm. Mm, Quite possibly. Universities in China, Mm. entrance is extremely Mm. competitive Mm. and not everybody gets in. It's not like here where if you want to go to university, pretty much, yeah, 
What about corruption, <laughs> Trevor? They're both corrupt. Yeah, I know they're I both corrupt, but we're, both we're, corrupt. we're again, we're choosing between the lesser of two evils. They're, they're equally as corrupt. Equally really? as corrupt. Of course they are. I think China's way more corrupt. How do you know? The US. In what I don't way? know. Well, you can know. open a bar in an American city and, you know, your business will do well or it won't do well depending on, mm. you know, a number of factors mainly determined by how well you, you run it. In China, you can't just go and open a business. Uh, I was thinking more of a corruption at a higher level where we're talking millions of dollars, so in terms of uh, Defence Department contracts. It's all the way down in China. So in terms of Defence Department contracts, that sort of multi-million dollar level, um, uh, that's where it would, at the lower level of paying off for protection, I don't know, in China, yes, you've got to pay mm. um, your local communist guy, but who knows, that could be just like a tax that you pay. I don't know. I think if we were to have a... But we don't Chinese know these person We're just on guessing. the podcast tonight to talk about China, and we nearly did have that. Yeah, thanks but, to. But that's just the one twelfth man. One person. If, if if they were to say disparaging comments about the Chinese Communist Party, and they had family or you know nearest and dearest very still living in China, it would be very brave of them to come on here, not use an alias and speak truthfully about their feelings about the Chinese Communist Party, whereas if you had a Republican come onto the podcast, they could say I don't think whatever would accept they want about America <laughs> or, or a Democrat, sorry, if they had a Democrat on here, they, they could bag Trump out absolutely. as and much as you want with no absolutely fear. Absolutely nothing would happen to them. No fear of... Or their family. That, that, yeah. that is quite true. Mm. Give you that freedom of speech, absolutely. You got two concessions in one night yeah. from Trevor. Give you, like, so, look, I'm not You're saying I'm not You're su- a legend. Walter. I'm, I'm just I'm not suggesting uh, China is a utopia. No, and but, I'm not suggesting the United States well, well, is a utopia. Okay. I, so that's where I push. I back, used to I, I used to think in the eighties, a kid growing up in the eighties, I used to look at the USA with such envy. You know, mm. the movies and the TV programs and mm. the culture, I just thought that looks mm. like a fantastic place. Mm. I would not want to live there now. Like mm. I, I just look at them with pity now, the Americans. Like they've gone from a country that I envy to a country that I pity within 20 years. Because mm. you've come <laughs> to understand it. Yep. Uh, and I think they've changed a lot. But you'd well. still rather move to America if you had to move. And you're only given two options, the United States or China. Which one would you choose? Finland. No, no, of course. <laughs> no, uh, How the wealthy States, are you? The United States. How wealthy are you with this move? How Bec- wealthy? Yeah. I you, think got, regardless. You've got to, do you know how many school shootings there are every week in America? I don't understand why people... Who can afford Don't go to, to school in America? I can't well, understand. If you do take a gun. Why people who have got school aged children who could afford to leave America? I don't understand why they're still there. Like, mm. there's a lot yeah. wrong with America. We yeah. know that. Yeah, they're not going to be shot in school in China. Although there have been attacks with knives by crazy people in China <laughs> course, who go into schools course. and. And kill children. Of, of course they have. But there haven't been Sandy Hooks every week no, like there has been in America. Here's my worry for the future. This is what I wanted to get at. Oh, okay. With China. <laughs> There's relative stability there yep. because of the progress. Yes. But the progress has got to stop 
at some point. And when that does, I, I think there's going to be another revolution or at least an attempted revolution in China by the Chinese people. Okay, but that could happen anywhere. Mm. America could have a revolution. Yeah, but I think it's more likely in China. Right. And is that a bad thing? Um, I think it'll be like it'll have a ripple effect on the world mm-hmm. because of the, you know, it will it will then be the biggest nation in the world economically. Probably by that stage it might even be twice the size but of America. If, you, if you're worried about an ec- the risk of an economic collapse of a major power, mm. arguably you've got a bigger risk of America collapsing and causing a well, bigger Well, in a, a couple ripple. of years' time I don't think it's going to be the biggest power anyway. And yeah, by but, some measures it's and, not. And its chances of collapsing are perhaps even higher. Mm. So, um, do you know but what the... our dependence on China, Australia's dependence on China is a lot more than our dependence on America. I mean, we rely on America militarily, but in, in terms of our trade, uh, China is 38% or th- uh, about a third. Can I give you a corruption index? Whereas America is about 4%. So, you know, if stuff happens in China... We feel it in Australia much more than we feel anything sure. negative if, if shit sure. goes down in We're the US. Connected what about more. debt to GDP? Do you look at that? Is that significant? Because China has a very high debt to GDP rate at the moment. Nothing like America's. Or I Japan's. Think it is. But American debt's huge. So is China's. Not, 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 not compared to China. I think it is. No. It's huge. And the American debt's way worse. Just on corruption, Davina mm. in the chat room says uh, oh, there's, an in, there's an index. <laughs> oh, Davina, yes. Uh, China rates 41 out of 100 and the US is 69 out of 100 with 100 being very clean and zero right? being highly corrupt. Say so those numbers again, Trevor. That's China is 41 yeah. out of 100, US is 69 out of 100? Corruption. Yes. Um, 69 is worse than 41, I take no, it. No, no, no. 40, 60, 100 is very clean. Zero oh, is highly corrupt. Okay. I thought, yeah, I thought. Okay. Tricked so, me. So the US is. I thought the US was more corrupt than the China. The US is that. less corrupt. It, it scores 69. China scores 51. Oh, okay. uh, 41. Thanks for backing me up Australia? there, Davina. But, uh, Davina, what's the Australian one? Just <laughs> please. <laughs> Because and make it quick because we're winding up in two minutes because we're already at, we're already at oh my god uh, we're, two hours and eighteen minutes or yeah. something already you, you know what I you know what I think I like Chinese. <laughs> yeah I, I think um, like Chinese. Uh, yeah we've destroyed our career to in politics knees. I think tonight. <laughs> Um, but Trevor's Trevor's still got a chance. He's he's open for um, donations from, yeah. uh, from wealthy Chinese businessmen. Should we chop this up into two episodes? <laughs> Can we come back next? Oh, there's a lot going on. We'll be back next week. There is a lot going yeah. on. Yeah, Davina, start typing. You've got ten seconds. All right. Okay. Yeah. Well, Who else is hanging in there at this point? Anyway, I think that's else? been ah, Davina. Thank you. Seventy-seven. For Australia. Yay. 69 Aussie, for Aussie, Aussie. 41 for China. That's right. On. There we go. Well, seven people have stayed with us. We were as high as 16 at one point. It's been Thanks a marathon effort. Um, I'm sure they've enjoyed it. I've well, enjoyed it. I think it's interesting. Yeah. yeah. I think it's worth doing. Good to understand We've China a bit more. decreased mm. our 
ignorance. Yes, we'll learn which something. Which has a ripple effect where we no longer project poorly. Yes. And what was the other thing? We're no longer as fearful. Yeah. Meanwhile, we disagree just as much as we did at the beginning, <laughs> despite all that. But was it got two concessions from Trevor? I don't know how you do it, Warren. <laughs> it's more reasonable than you. It's called being a beer sponsor. <laughs> <laughs> right, dear listener, see you. Probably see you next week, unless I decide to split this into two. But, but anyway, all right, see ya. Bye. Yep, see Bye, you guys. everyone. Uh, God, three hours and 15 minutes or something. Oh, what? Three hours and 15 no, two hours. Oh, two hours and 20 minutes. Right. That was good. Well that's done, fun. chaps. Yeah, that's good. Oh. oh. And when I say middle name, we say, I don't have one. We were too poor. Oh. <laughs> Fist. Hard bottom here. It might surprise you, nay, it might astound you to know that I too have walked in the long, cool shadow of poverty. I was once so poor I could only afford to drive in a BMW. It breaks my heart to hear your story. And although people know me as a champion of the working man and as a man of philanthropy, Few people know my gift for giving names. And so it is, henceforth, that you shall be known as Trevor Tinker Bell. Tinker Bell, it has a noble sound, doesn't it? No, no, don't thank me. To know that you shall henceforth be known as Trevor Tinker Bell is reward enough. Well, dear listener, did you enjoy that episode of the podcast? If you did, I've got a favour to ask. Uh, first up, tell some friends. Let them know about the podcast. You'll be discussing something at some time and you might be repeating something I've said. And when you're talking to your friends, say, hey, I heard this on this podcast and it's worth listening to. And maybe pick an episode that you think's a good one and direct them to it. Like grab their phone and go to their podcast app and search for Iron Fist Velvet Glove and subscribe <laughs> on their behalf on their phone and uh, and just put the word out. The other thing is you could become a patron and support the show. So if you go to our website, you'll see a link to Patreon and there are some different options for subscribing and paying per episode. And really the amount that you pay depends on what you get from the podcast. So there's different levels ranging from $1.50 Australian to, I think, $10 and various ones in between. It's really, what do you think it's worth? Is it worth a cup of coffee? Uh, is it worth more than that, less than that? Whatever you get out of it, because not everybody gets the same. Maybe you don't listen to the whole thing. Maybe you never talk about it with people. Maybe... You really couldn't care less half the time whether the podcast is there. It just, it'll be different for everybody. So if you get a lot out of the podcast, contribute a bit more. If you don't get much, contribute less. But in any event, you can subscribe there. If you don't like the idea of a regular subscription, the website has a link to a PayPal donation. So you could just do a one-off donation every now and again. So there you go. It'd be good to uh, spread the word, get a few more listeners and that way, look, if we ended up getting more listeners and more money, we could do maybe a second episode or more special episodes, provide some more content. So it's up to you. If you think it's worthwhile, let people know.
Thanks.